Greetings, Guardians. It's April 10th, 2016, and this is Ghost Stories, a Destiny podcast. This is episode 22, and I know last uh, last week on the show, we had uh, we said we had some surprises kind of in store, being that this is about our six-month anniversary of being a podcast, so we are keeping that promise tonight. Uh, we have a special guest here, and... To kind of do a, a nice long intro here, um, as everyone kind of knows, we've we uh, <laughs> drop slash has put in a ton of work, and not that not that we not that we don't do stuff, but but he really was the the backbone behind putting together all the stuff you've heard in our many 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 books of sorrows ep- books of sorrow episodes, and um, how how many hours drop would you estimate you've put into your research? I've got to be in the triple digits at this point. It's awesome. Between Books of Sorrow, King's Fall, and all the Reddit posts and the episodes, yeah, easily in the hundreds of hours. Awesome. Maybe probably. Well, there you heard Drop Slash and Handsome Dragon. We also have Gabble Ratchet with us. What's up, buddy? Hey, I'm doing good. How are you? Good, good. Um, but, you know, all of this time that has been put in uh, has, has made for some pretty amazing episodes. And to kind of, of show even more of our appreciation towards that content and to the listeners um, we have with us today, uh, the writer of short stories such as Morgan in Shadow, Please Undo This Hurt, and Economies of Force, uh, and many more. Uh, but he's also contributed his writings to Bungie's Destiny franchise in the form of item descriptions, grimoire cards, and the Books of Sorrow. His recent novel, The Traitor Baru Cormorant, uh, released uh, last September 15th, and is, is I'm in the middle of it, and it is definitely a, a great read, uh, but it's already kind of this classic in its own right. We have with us science fiction and fantasy writer, designer, Seth Dickinson. How's it going? Good. It's great to be here. Oh, man, we are really excited uh, <laughs> very very <laughs> <Ayot. laughs> um i mean such a such a, a great opportunity and thank you so much for for being here with us um and i don't i guess we can just kind of jump right into it why don't you uh let's jump right us. in but first let me ask you a question oh yeah yeah i so i'm recording myself with quicktime and as i speak I hear myself, and it's like being the Borg. It's really weird. Uh, if I turn the volume slider on QuickTime all the way down, will I still be recording? Yes, you will. I keep my slider all, right. all the way down. Problem yep. solved. <laughs> all right. Yeah, so uh, you were saying. Yeah. Um, how are you? <laughs> I, I'm pretty good. I actually just uh, got back from an X-Wing tournament. I don't know if you guys uh, play any board games. Um, there's a game where you like buy little Star Wars spaceships and then you, you fly them around at each other. It's really fun. I'm pretty addicted. That yeah, it's awesome. great. <laughs> actually, I have a buddy who does who does some of that and he's texted me about it. I guess he did a tournament a couple months ago and he was... I guess like the area he's in just started hosting tournaments and he's he was pretty pumped about it. Good, I'm glad. It's actually, a, it's really funny. There's a Star Wars game uh, by Fantasy Flight, which is very well maintained and they only put out a few products. Um, 
And so they've done, by this point, the game's been around for a couple of years, and they've done, I think, eight waves of ships. Uh, so kind of like Star Wars is just a few movies, but they've had a lot of cultural impact. And then there's a Star Trek mm-hmm. game done by another company. And they're on, like, wave 25. There are so many uh, Star Trek <laughs> Attack Wing products. But their rules are terrible. The game's awful. Um, <laughs> and uh, I like Star Trek and Star Wars, but it's funny because the point where the Star Trek game really started going downhill was when they introduced the Borg. Because they couldn't, oh, no. like, they just did not balance the Borg correctly, and they sort of took over the game. So uh, you've got Star Trek being destroyed by the Borg. And then the big problem the Star Wars game had was they introduced the ship called the TIE Phantom. Uh, and they just kind of screwed up the rules, and it was super overpowered. So everyone was like, oh no, Star Wars has been ruined by the Phantom Menace. And I was like... <laughs> oh. <laughs> yeah. oh, that's... that's yeah, good. anyway, anyway, uh, so that was my day. Well, awesome. How are you guys? <laughs> good. I went to a uh, baseball game. I went. To, uh, I live in Arizona, Phoenix area, um, but my team's the uh, the Chicago Cubs. Oh, you town, poor man! So I got to go. I got to go. Yeah, <laughs> you know, tell them that every day. Yeah, it's been a it's been a long time coming, but uh, I feel like we got a pretty good team right now, so I'm I'm pretty hopeful. As an Astros so fan, you get zero sympathy for me, though. <laughs> <laughs> hey, I think I think you guys have won it before, since we have so. <laughs> When did you win? 2005 or something like 2006? Like one, so one, no one. talking. The World Series. No. It, it, we oh, we yeah, went it. to the World Series. We did not okay. win the World Series. Okay, close enough. So do we <laughs> want to... Uh, <laughs> sorry. No, do we no, want to give no, no, no. people listening uh, who want to talk about Destiny like a preview of what we're going to hit up? Like topics you're uh, you're planning on touching on? No, this is kind of how we roll. We'll just keep oh, okay. going through it. Cool. <laughs> we'll get Sounds there good. eventually. All right. <laughs> we'll make we them have, wait. We have a fan chat that's got, I think, almost 300 people in it now, and they dissect every single thing that we do the same way we <laughs> dissect everything that Bungie does with huh. Destiny. So we try. We give them hints about what we're doing, but we don't <laughs> always tell them explicitly because they love picking it apart as much as we do. So, And we love torturing them a little bit just as I'm – Assuming Benji loves torturing us a little bit. <laughs> yeah. Well, I was going to say that I can't be necessarily uh, very picky about my baseball because, you know, the Cardinals just, they just really don't know how to play bad seasons. So it's true. You know, it's, it's true. But, That's why uh, we hate them. Well, we're not here to talk baseball. <laughs> we're here to talk about uh, some of the stuff that, uh, that Seth does. Um, so, you know, we pulled a lot of information from from uh, your website and, and through some research, and uh, and so you know we found out that you uh, graduated from the University of Chicago uh, with a lapsed PhD or were a lapsed PhD candidate at NYU, and you were uh, going to study racial bias and social or in police shoot don't shoot decisions. Now that right there, I stopped in my tracks. I'm like, wow, that's. That's some deep stuff right there because I live in St. Louis uh, or near St. Louis, and this whole uh, Ferguson thing that's happened over or been been kind of a hot topic over the past yeah. couple of years really kind of of had me thinking. Um, I mean, what uh, what prompted you to kind of kind of shift a little bit, if you will, from from that to sci-fi and fantasy writing? Yeah. Um, so when I was an undergrad, I was really lucky. Uh, I ended up as a psych major. At Chicago, um, probably in no small part because it left me a lot of time for writing. But uh, 
Also because it was really interesting. And they, they turned out to actually have a uh, superb laboratory there, the Corel Lab, that was studying uh, racial bias in police shootings. And although this has been a problem in American society for decades, it was not as much of a hot topic pre, um, pre-Ferguson, uh, pre, you know, the last couple tragic years. Um, yeah. And at the time, basically, what we did was we ran a very basic computer game that simulated police shoot-don't-shoot decisions. You had to uh, look at a series of, of what we call targets that popped up on the screen, which were just different kinds of people in different sorts of situations holding either innocent objects or firearms. And you had to very, very quickly, like milliseconds, decide whether or not to fire. Um, And then we would just analyze the data. We would analyze where people's eyes moved. And we would look for racial bias in the way they behaved. Um, So when I left Chicago, I went to do a PhD program in that. uh, Sorry. uh, I went to do a PhD in that at NYU, um, which is a great opportunity. NYU is a fantastic program. But you'll hear this a lot uh, with people in grad school. It was just not a great fit for me. Grad school is really, uh, really miserable. Um, <laughs> it's super yep. crushing. And uh, especially in social psychology right now, there's just not nearly enough jobs uh, for all the people who, who want to get a job. So I was looking forward and I was like, I'm going to spend five or six years in grad school. Then if I'm lucky, I'll get a postdoc. And then... That'll be a couple of years. Then a couple of years is like a adjunct professor trying to get a tenure track job. And I didn't want to spend the next 15 years of my life, like, I don't know, writing papers and coercing graduate students into doing things for me. <laughs> so I actually, uh, I started working on a book when I was in my grad program. And then one day I just, I woke up and I could not go back into the lab. So after a couple of weeks, I just read them and was like, yeah, I'm not coming back. And uh, I spent the rest of the year um, writing, actually, The Traitor Barry Cormorant, which was that novel you guys mentioned. Uh, and what, what prompted it was... Uh, I've been, been writing for a long time. It's something that's pretty easy to do on top of a full-time job uh, if you make it a habit. And I think since I went to this writer's workshop when I was 16 or 17, um, I'd really hope to get a few stories published. And uh, because my partner had a steady job, uh, when I left grad school, I was able to say, okay, I don't have any debt. I don't have any financial obligations. I'm just going to take a little while and see what I can get done. And it panned out pretty well. And obviously, I I love science fiction and fantasy. I love literature. I love reading. Um, They are my big passions. So, And I also really love the implementation of stories in games. I'm really fascinated by it. And I think it's mostly unexplored terrain. Well, I have to say, oh, I was going to say, I, I wasn't, uh, you know, very much into, I, I like the stories and games, but I never had, had really delved deep into them like I probably could have or should have until Destiny. And, man, this one's got me, and, and a lot of it is is kind of thanks to some of your stuff. So thank you again. Uh Everyone loves when I say thank you, so it's kind of my thing. <laughs> no, thank you. Thank you. Yeah, that was uh, yeah, some exciting stuff. But, uh, well, I mean... So you also have... Oh, go ahead. I, I just wanted to say, uh, when I say thank you, I actually do mean that because it would be impossible to write the material we do if we didn't know there's uh, an inquisitive, uh, dedicated audience that's going to pull it apart. Um, if we were writing for... I don't know, a smaller franchise or for a community that does not have 
the Bungie community's history of looking at everything, we would have to make our writing more transparent. Um, we would have to do simpler things because otherwise, how could we be, how could we know that people would actually connect with it and dig through it enough to find all the connections? So it's cool to have that audience. It's great. Have you found that there are crossover fans who pull apart your book as much as people pull apart destiny? I doubt it. There are probably a couple. <laughs> um, and it's funny cause I also, uh, for a long time, sorry, moving my chair. Uh, for a long time, I worked on this just open source hobby game project called Blue Planet, uh, where we basically made a fan sequel to this old game, Free Space 2, which I love. Uh, one of my favorite pieces of game writing. And our community there was incredibly devoted. And it was very much the same thing that they asked me to do when they hired me for Destiny, which was, we want you to fill in the background behind all this stuff and... Um, we basically want you to do what everyone wishes the writers of Lost or Battlestar Galactica had done. Oh, right. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Uh, and I don't think there's been much crossover between Blue Planet, Destiny, and uh, my work. And why would there be? Because my job on Destiny is to write, you know, material for Destiny. It's not to write Seth Dickinson, I don't know, mm -hmm. stuff. Um, but I, I always like doing writing that rewards that kind of uh, dissection. Um, I, but I think there's a scale to destiny that makes it much easier, um, for everyone to get engaged in like theory crafting and lore and the crypt arc stuff, partly because everything is available online, uh, and is broken up into little cards. Yeah. Have you, did you find that your, your graduate study work uh, in psychology and in things like racial bias. I mean, those influences certainly seem to show up uh, in your book. Would, did you keep those themes in mind when you were writing the book or did that sort of evolve naturally as, hey, this is a thing that I studied. I want these themes to be addressed. It's really hard for me to not include psychology in my writing. Um, not because people think that being a psychologist would make you better at writing about your character's emotions and the complexity of their feelings. And, you know, sort of the cliched psychology stuff, like how their childhood trauma influences their behavior today. That's actually not what modern psychology is about at all. Um, a lot of psychology right now is about studying what we call heuristic bias, which is this invisible layer of rules your mind uses to filter and sort information before you're even aware of it. Um, so psychology really teaches you that the human mind is quite unreliable and selective in what it sees, and that you have to be really careful about believing or, or thinking you're confident in anything. Uh, it teaches you great skepticism mm -hmm. about uh, any claim to absolute truth. Um, it teaches you to be wary of how your own thoughts are going to be distorted by what you want to believe, by the people around you, things like that. Uh, so whenever I write, little bits of that creep in. Um, for example, in Destiny, there's a lot of very explicit uh, material written in the grimoire um, about how the characters think about minds. Uh, they all think of... Uh, none of them have a belief in, like, a, a soul. They all seem to think, you know, if my brain were uploaded to a computer, it would still be me. 
Uh, and that's very much a lot of it is that that's my bias as a scientist, as a physicalist, um, saying, you know, this is how I understand the brain. Uh, and so that's an example of my psychology creeping in. And then, yeah, obviously the traitor bar cormorant, which is totally different from destiny. Destiny is like big cosmic, uh, mystery and adventure. And Baru Cormorant is about imperialism and um, mm -hmm. sort of the moral cost of working within a system you despise. And that's much more about uh, prejudice and power, which is the kind of stuff I studied in school. And Destiny is not about that. Destiny doesn't really care about prejudice because humanity has defeated um, those, those demons. Humanity doesn't have to worry about that stuff anymore. Oh, we like yeah. that. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So me, who's taking number two here? Go for it, John. All right. So on your website, you mentioned that you are an instructor at the Alpha Workshop for Young Writers. Uh, and we would love to know more about what that is uh, and how it helps uh, young upcoming writers. Yeah. Uh, really quick. Alpha is a workshop for writers ages 14 to 19. Uh, it's every summer around Pittsburgh. It's at a college campus near Pittsburgh. Um, you can apply uh, as long as you're age 14 and 19. Uh, you come. Every year we have four guest writers who teach. Uh, it's about a little more than a week long, week and a half. Uh, you stay there with 20 other kids or young people. Uh, you get lectures. You hang out with the writers. Uh, you might recognize some of the names. We've had Tamara Pierce. She's there every year. Scott Westerfeld, um, oh God, why am I blinking? Uh, this year we've got Amala Motar, Melinda Lowe, Max Gladstone, Tamara Pierce, most of we had in the past, uh, Aliyah Don Johnson, uh, basically if you, if you read, um, science fiction and fantasy, uh, yeah, Tim awesome. Zahn, who did the sort of first Star Wars books, not quite yeah, the first, Empire? but yeah, yeah, he taught there a couple of years, uh, he was great, um, and uh, our goals are basically... So I went there as a student uh, in 2006. I was, what, 17. And uh, I had a great time. And it, it basically gives you a toolkit. Uh, it teaches you how to write a science fiction or fantasy short story. How to build up the mental strength to keep working at it, even as you do college and all that shit. Um, <laughs> how to handle rejection... Uh, how to keep submitting your stories until you sell, and then how to build up to a novel. Uh, wow, yeah. that's awesome. Yeah. I wish I'd had that when I was 14 to 19. <laughs> and it's, <laughs> you know, I think maybe the biggest benefit is it's just a really good time. A lot of the kids there, the kids, the young people, they get to be, you know, with other people like them. And it's, uh, I don't know, it's just a good, you make friends who will last you a really long time. Yeah, being That's being awesome. that that you know I'm a I'm a father of a oh god twelve year old now um, huh. you know hearing the things hearing about these things really get me excited because she's she's actually into writing quite a bit right now not as much as she is playing her piano and and doing some other stuff but but knowing that there are are you know workshops and and things like that are, are just amazing and we've got a lot of, of parents and we've actually got a, a quite a few quite a few uh younger kind of aspiring artists and and uh writers that we associate with 
that are listeners. So this is this is great. I mean, this is. I know you, at first it kind of felt like you almost hesitated a bit. Well, I'll tell you real quick. But man, this is this is good stuff. This is. I mean, the kind of things that we love to hear about. So so that's. I commend you on doing that because that's such a great way to give back, and I'm, I'm sure it's it's quite fulfilling. It uh, is. Whenever, it is. Whenever you do that. Yeah. And if I had one piece of advice for your daughter, um, it would be. Do not self-reject. Um, self-rejection is when people say, well, my writing's not good enough, or I need to work a little more, or uh, they probably wouldn't be interested in what I have to say. This is particularly a problem for young women, for non-white people. Um, a lot of times I will hear, I just don't think uh, I would sell, or I don't think I have anything interesting to say. It's completely wrong. You would not believe the quantity of like, hey, I novelized my Dungeons & Dragons game that shows up in everybody's slush piles. There is no way you can be less interesting than most of what's being submitted. And the technical quality of, of most people who are submitting short stories and novels is also awful. They're terrible writers. So you can't possibly be worse than them. And uh, please do us all a favor and send us your awesome thoughts, your story. Like, don't be a perfectionist about it. Just get in there and, I, I don't know, do, do the thing. Do it. Don't not do it. Do it. Well, that's one of those. That's one of those interesting things about the internet, especially these days, with where you can gain exposure to like thousands and thousands of pieces of work that are really, really, really good, and it can be really intimidating if you're like an up and coming artist because you're constantly faced with all this incredibly amazing work. And sometimes it takes a minute to realize that there are just as many people who are terrible at the same thing that you're trying to do. <laughs> so don't always think you're at the bottom of the pile because, you know, there's just it, that door opens in both directions. Yeah, absolutely. And one of the very uh, weird, difficult things about uh, picking up some writing experience, about going from just, oh, you know, typing your fanfic, there's actually a lot of really talented, sophisticated fanfic. But say, writing a Reddit post about... Uh, you know, you make a story out of the raid you did last night. Uh, going from that to thinking about more technical stuff like prose style, uh, structure, scansion, whatever, is that uh, as you practice writing, this sucks. It's so hard to deal with. Your ability to criticize writing and to measure how good it is will develop much faster than your own skill as a writer. And this creates a sort of mental illusion that you're actually getting worse because you're... Oh, interesting. You're, spotting flaws in your writing faster than you're fixing them so it looks like every day there's more and more wrong uh and it's really paralytic you just have to you got to find your own way through it um oh that's an amazing phenomenon i never even would have yeah it sounds very similar to my experience as a as a songwriter actually <laughs> uh, I, yeah i'll bet it kind of crosses over yeah same with mine as a photographer and mine as a dad <laughs> that's my thing wow. <laughs> no. you don't see flaws in your own x-rays that you take that's you know what man i i when i used to when i still took x-rays yeah absolutely there was i i was my biggest critic and i think that's kind of where this is all going you know you and and that's a good thing but at the same time i can see how that can turn bad really fast if you're if you kind of get down on yourself um before we before we move on to the to the next question i do want to mention uh, again um, you know, in our listener chat, uh, we've got a channel that is strictly for member content, for fan fiction writing, for 
uh, artwork, anything even not related to Destiny. So if you're, again, someone wanting to, to you want to share some of your stuff and you need a group to do it with, definitely, you know, think about coming in and hanging out with us in our in our listener chat and doing that because it's it's a great place to get very good honest feedback i've i've done a few recordings and things i'm like hey what's this sound like like, oh dude that's terrible i'm like good i thought it was i'm glad you said it was (laughs) but there's also been some i mean there's there's been some really great uh kind of of i i I guess it's you know feedback well feedback and and actually um you know our our two artists we talk about uh sherbet pop and and jared b i mean Jared like did this whole I don't there was like a whole day where he was describing how to do I forget what it was he was like doing shading with with like a certain type of of uh uh color and not, not color but but it was pencils or or chalk or something and shirt pop was just eating that up and I was too I was like man that is really cool and he was like doing kind of a, a frame by frame thing of of how to do that he was basically teaching class in the chat it was pretty it was a pretty awesome thing to watch and and so you know if again you want people to read your your writings critique your art whatever whatever you're doing you know we're we're a place that that can definitely help and and in a in a nice safe environment too we don't put up with anybody being being silly so yeah, that's something that's been super important for me personally. Like, I keep, I may not talk a lot in the fan chat. And every once in a while, somebody will drag me into a conversation about Toland or paracausality. <laughs> but uh, I monitor it constantly because I am completely dedicated to make sure it stays a safe space, especially for people who want to talk about what they want to talk about and, and being creative and not, you know, just having it be supportive and, and safe for, for anybody who wants to be in there. Yeah. So let's move on to to this this novel. Um, yeah. Speaking of criticism, yeah. <laughs> uh, so you know when I when I was was looking up some of the uh, the feedback and reviews that you've received, um, man, I, I struggled to find anything negative about it, and and that is that speaks volumes to me, especially when you're looking for reviews on the internet, because people are more than happy to tell you how bad you are at things or how bad you do stuff. But, uh, I'm going to read a few of these off that, that we found, uh, seductively complex by publishers weekly. Um, John Chu. I don't know who that is, but he's a uh, Nebula award-winning short story writer. He's very good. Oh, well, well, there you go. There you go. He, uh, he said, it's a beautiful, perfectly formed crystal of a novel. Man, that was elegant in and of itself. Um, <laughs> one of 2015's very finest fantasies and clever and subversive. Uh, and that was, I'm going to butcher this name, Niall? Niall? Alexander? For, uh, for Tor? Yep. Okay. Um, crucial, necessary, crucial, necessary, viscerally riveting. Uh, unflinching into its self-replicating virus of empire. Amal El Mohat. Oh, Amal El Mohat. Yeah, from from NPR. (laughs) There was a great, and also there's a great NPR article um, about uh, your book, which I I read and and was just again, just like man, I gotta read this thing. Uh, And then and then the last one we have here is from Max Gladstone. He says, "A poet's dune, a brutal tale of empire, rebellion." Fealty and high finance that moves like a rocket and burns twice as hot. The traitor Baru Cormorant 
is a mic drop for epic fantasy. Boom. <laughs> uh, <laughs> he didn't say boom. That was me. Uh, but but man, but he should have. Yeah, it's, I'm gonna call him and say, man, next time say boom. Um, <laughs> but man, what do you think about the the feedback that you get? I know that the, when we get feedback about our podcast, that's that's positive, and and you know, I I can't believe it still, and and I've got to assume it, it's the same. Yeah, it's a tricky thing. Oh, man, this topic is so fraught. Um, <laughs> so, a lot of my fellow writers will probably, my fellow writers, you know, we fancy people. Uh, <laughs> the circles. Will, will probably back me up in this, but it is very, very weird to put a book out. It's one of the strangest experiences I've ever had. One of the reasons is you have a responsibility as an author to let the work speak for itself. There's nothing worse you can do than arguing with or even really talking to a critic directly. Um, so you sort of have this responsibility to become no one, to uh, not respond to things said about your book. I mean, you can you can say thanks and stuff like that. Uh, and yet... So, I'm sorry, could you, could you hit me again with a question just to focus me down? You want to know just what it's been like to... Yeah. Yeah. So, well, what are your general feelings about, like, the reception of the book? Uh, and then I added this question, like, how do you think that so much sort of, like, positive reviews and, and high praise has affected your approach to the sequel? Yeah. Uh, well, I, I'm obviously really happy and grateful people liked the book. Uh, it really found its audience. I was overjoyed with that. Um, and it's been great to hear back from so many thoughtful people thinking about what the book's about and really connecting with it. Um, I, I wish in a greedy way that some of the analysis had gone even further. Um, I did this sort of read along on my blog where I went through sentence by sentence and tried to pick out the way I'm really interested in this phenomenon called incarnation where you take the big themes of the novel, uh, like, say, in this case, um, hiding yourself in something big, trying to tear down an empire from the inside, assimilation, uh, division, uh, sort of being at war with yourself, and then you try to make that live in the structure of the sentences, like the words you choose, where you put your commas, uh, how long your paragraphs are, that reflects the, the themes of the work. So, in a greedy way, I wish there'd been even more, but anyone's, any writer's incredibly lucky uh, to have their their work looked at in that sense. Uh, so, I, I'm really glad people have looked at it. At the same time, um, it was also this sort of weird, distant alien thing. Uh, I try to be open about this stuff, because I know a lot of writers uh, struggle with depression and mental illness. Uh, and a lot of people in the games industry, too. And it is very, very stigmatized to talk about it openly. Uh, but we have to. Um, after uh, just sort of working so hard for so long, by the time the book came out, uh, I was really just not in a great spot. Um, and I was more dreading it than anything else. I I just went and hid at a friend's place when the, <laughs> the book was coming out and turned off the internet. Uh <laughs> And it, it just sort of happened uh, and went by. And this is something I try to tell my students. Uh, there are things you look forward to 
as these huge milestones in your life. Like, I remember when I was younger, I thought, oh, I'll just, I'll publish one short story, and then I'll feel like a real writer, and I'll be confident and happy about it. And then it was, well, I'll get a book out there, and then I will, I will feel happier every day, because my book has been released. But none of those things you look forward to will ever quite do what you want. Um, and the things that make you happy and fulfilled turn out to be much simpler than that. Uh, but it is, it's very weird to have everyone around you talking about, you know, what a big year you're having and what a big deal the book is. And you're sort of there like, well, I, I wish I could feel that. Um, mm -hmm. It's a weird, strange... I don't know. I don't know. I'm out of synonyms. Uh, <laughs> it's an uncanny, eldritch experience. Harrowing. Uh, have the reviews affected the sequel? So, books are written... It takes about a year, sometimes more, for a publisher to take your finished manuscript and turn it into a book. So I sold uh, this novel in March or April of whatever year Destiny came out. Uh, mm -hmm. So two years ago. Um, mm -hmm. 2014. And it didn't come out for 18 months. And in that time, I had already uh, come up with a list of things I wanted to do in the sequel. Um, because every time you choose to write something... Uh, it's kind of like making a build in a game like Destiny. You cannot make a build that does everything. You have to choose something you want to be good at and focus on that. Um, and so when I wrote this book, I made a specific set of decisions and I sacrificed other things. I knew it was going to be a very cold book. It was going to be a very cutting book. It was going to be focused entirely on one person's psyche. Um, it was going to be sort of sweeping... It was going to try to fit the events of a standard fantasy trilogy into one book. Uh, but I knew that would have to sacrifice a lot of warmth, um, a lot of stuff like friendship and low-key downtime that really often gets readers attached to characters. And I wanted to do more of that in my second book. Um, so I guess that's also part of why it's so strange to have a book come out. Because you are not thinking you've had 18 months to tear your own book apart and to sort of do a post-mortem on it. So by the time the book comes out, you're not thinking, boy, I hope people like this book. You're thinking, boy, I hope they don't notice all that stuff I have <laughs> about how bad it is. Uh, and that makes the praise you get sort of weirdly inauthentic because you're like, ah, I fooled them. They think the book is good, <laughs> but actually I know, you know, whatever, whatever you've decided was wrong with it. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so, I don't know, no, I would say the reviews have not um, changed the direction I wanted to go with the sequel. I, I had a pretty good master plan. There have been reviews that have complained about things that I wanted to fix in the sequel. Uh, so mm -hmm. hopefully I'll get some of those things better. Excellent. Were there any particular comments that you just absolutely loved? Like ones you put on a plaque and hang in your apartment? <laughs> oh, God, yes. Um, <laughs> I'm sure. But, I mean, the I got a really nice... The uh, the quotes they put on book jackets, like the ones you just read, are called blurbs. And I was really lucky. I got some mm. great blurbs. Um, I, I would feel selfish picking one out because uh, whenever someone goes out of their way to give you a nice quote, it's, it's really cool. I really like them. I think the most rewarding thing is probably talking to readers who really engaged with it and really got the book. That's cool. I like that. Nice. nice. I got to share one of my favorites. I don't have it right here in front of me, but uh, 
I was reading and it said uh, Seth Dickinson does in one book what George R. R. Martin took three books to do or something like that. I was like, whoa. <laughs> I guess just because he's like a real slow, slow writer. There was just, you know, there's just a, so much going on right right from the get-go, at least for me, in uh, in uh, The Traitor. Uh, and just so good. Thank you. Well, you and you had also said that that was very deliberate, it, that the first two chapters of the book were written in a way that either our reader would be on board with the themes and move forward or would be able to put it down saying this is not yes. for me. Yes, yeah, that's true. Uh, and I, I think I'm, I'm really glad to hear the compressed pace work for some people, but uh, I don't think that's quite fair to George R. R. Martin because uh, he's doing no. something very different. I knew the right, ending. I know, I know, I know. The ending was the first part of my story I knew, whereas George has to... He's a gardener. He has to set his characters up and give them things they care about and let them talk to each other, and then the story kind of figures out where it's going, uh, which is a very different approach. And I think why his series has gotten sort of tangled and um, much harder to write as it's gone on, because he has so many threads uh, and probably does not have the firmest idea of where they're going, um, which has let the narrative sprawl in a really difficult way. And I was lucky to dodge that because I only have one point of view character. So that right, that was right. easier. I was reading an interesting thing about his publisher, and apparently his publisher has a way to like really fast track his books. So like he submits a manuscript in April, and they can have the book published and on shelves by September. Like they're they they're willing to cut him a lot of speed in getting his books written. Good, that's awesome. <clears throat> All right. Well, so moving on from the. From that experience, uh, this is our, our the next question is the path from short story uh, writer to working on a game like Destiny seems that's like a dream path for a lot of people. Uh, how did you end up getting involved with Bungie and Destiny, and were you a fan of their work before you took the assignment? Yeah, so I'll take the one backwards. Um, the way I got involved with uh, Bungie was as a middle schooler i want to say maybe an early yeah yeah i was totally in middle school um i picked up the prima strategy guide for halo one <laughs> i did not own an xbox nice. but i really loved um i love the art design i loved the names of the aliens and vehicles i really liked the uh, sort of banks orbital setting everyone says it's a ring world it's not a ring world it's a banks orbital uh <laughs> and uh so just sort of the aesthetic uh, pleased me. So I read uh, The Fall of Reach and thought it was really solid military science fiction. Um, and then, this is a funny detour. I did not have an Xbox. <laughs> I could not play Halo. So I just read the Marathon story page. Uh, I didn't play Marathon oh, either, nice. but Marathon story page is this uh, sprawling labyrinth uh, of like 20 years of people analyzing Marathon. For those of you who haven't played it, mm -hmm. this is one of Bungie's early first-person shooters. Um and Halo has really drawn on it a lot. Uh, it Marathon is... It's not quite the earliest game in Bungie's uh, pedigree to feed forward into all the later games, but it's probably the most influential of their early games on the later ones. Yes. Uh, yeah, so I, I read the Marathon story page a lot. Um, then later I talked my parents into getting me an Xbox around the Halo 2 <laughs> launch. Uh, and I was sort of a conventional Bungie fan. 
maybe a little more cantankerous and ornery on the internet than some. Uh, I had very, very strong feelings about the narrative design and the art style and stuff as the series went on. Uh, and yes, yeah, so I was a fan of their work before, uh, before I got involved with Destiny. Um, the way I got involved in Destiny was I'd been selling short stories for a couple of years. I had finished the Trader Bar Cormorant um, and just started submitting it. I didn't have an agent yet. Uh, and an agent then sells your book to a publisher. Um, so I was like, boy, I should get a job because I'm going to run out of money. Uh, and I don't want my partner to have to pay all the rent. <laughs> so uh, actually around that time, a headhunter working for 343 Industries uh, contacted me and said, hey, we're looking for people um, who might be useful for a writing position at 343. Uh, and I said, sure. Uh, I'll check it out. I'd love to apply. Um, and I, I had a CV in that, you know, I had story sales. I'd worked on, uh, this game mod for many, many years, Blue Planet that I mentioned earlier. So I felt really confident that I could demonstrate, uh, good prose writing, a good sense for science fiction, and a good ability to step into someone else's universe and do really good work with it. Um, so while I was applying to 343, I was like, I should get another job offer out there so I can play them off each other and get more money. Uh, and as it happened at the time, Bungie just had a posting on their website, like, hey, we want a writer. Uh, and the job description was like, writer, you will write things. You will work with other people to write stuff. I'm, I'm sorry, I'm sure it was better. It was more technical than that. Uh, but I just filled out their... Um, they asked for, like, a your CV and maybe a personal statement? I don't remember. Uh, so I just cold applied for that, sent that in, um, and I don't, I don't know if I'm allowed to talk about the process after that, but there was a writing test and an interview, both of which were a ton of fun. Um, nice. and then they gave me the job. So that was it. There were no connections, no, uh, people always ask me, like, do you need an in? Uh, the one in I did have was that the man who ended up hiring me, Eric Robb, um, who was, like, <sighs> By the time I got there, he was head writer, but I think he'd previously been the editor at Tor Books, who worked on the Halo novels, and they brought him in-house for Destiny to be sort of a content editor um, or something like that for Destiny. Uh, and he had worked in publishing previously, so he was able to recognize all the um, the names of like the short story markets I'd sold to. And if he had not been there, I suspect... I would have had a harder time getting hired because I didn't have any previous game industry experience. So that that was lucky. I got lucky. I'm very grateful to Eric for making that happen. Nice. It's funny that you mentioned Marathon. Uh, we did an episode of this show where I basically dove into all the past Bungie games and extracted every reference from those games that currently exists in Destiny. Uh, and it's really obvious that Marathon has had the largest impact, but we explored the connections between Marathon and Halo and Marathon and Destiny and Destiny and Halo and even some of the previous games. Uh, so, cool. It was a, it was a good show. <laughs> so, I, yeah, yeah, don't, not that we're biased or anything, so. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, so, I mean, obviously, you know, working, working in video games and, you know, writing short stories and, and novels are different but do you 
have a preference? Is there one that you kind of prefer more than the other, or um, are there they're just so different that they're not really comparable? Uh, why not both? Um, <laughs> when you are working on a short story or a novel, you have absolute creative control. Uh, you can change anything you want. Uh, and that means you can attune every piece of the work to do one thing, uh, to serve the narrative, which is nice. When you're working on a game, you get to bounce ideas off other people. You're part of a creative process. And you get to see other people, if you're really lucky, you get to see other people pick up your work and run with it, which is really, really rewarding. Um, so I'd have a hard time picking a favorite. I had amazing uh, experiences working on Blue Planet. Uh, I still work with them. We're just sort of a bunch of people in an IRC chat. Uh, and writing novels is, is very solitary. It's a very lonely experience, especially if you're the kind of writer where it fucks up your process if someone else looks at your work early, so you can't share it till you're done. Uh, so I would not I would not pick a favorite, but they each have very different strengths and weaknesses. Um, like the strength of writing is that it's solitary, the weaknesses it's solitary. Uh, the strength of game design or working and game writing is that you have all these other amazing people around you. The weakness is there are going to be politics. There's a tricky process. You've got to make sure you're all on the same page. Uh, so yeah, there are different challenges. Well, so, so, I mean, I guess, you know, speaking of, of the, the strengths and the, the weaknesses, um, did that have any bearing on kind of the work that you were assigned or the work that you would do while writing for destiny? Well, more so I would say when you're going into something like destiny, especially being a fan of Bungie, you know, you're going into something that already has an enormous pre-built audience uh, versus a novel where you don't even have an audience yet because the book's not out. So uh, I mean, just this sort of relates to the, the prior question was like, did you have, was it intimidating at all going in knowing, wow, I'm going to write content for a game that's played by like 20 million people are going to see my work the second it's done and pushed out there uh, versus I hope people really like my book that nobody's seen yet. I could totally see how it would be intimidating. For me, um, I just felt really lucky. Uh, and it was sort of empowering to know that everything I wrote would be looked at by millions of eyes and torn apart because it meant... I could do more ambitious things. Um, like if you read a lot of the uh, the armor flavor text from back in D1, which was mostly my mm -hmm. work, uh, a lot of it is quite esoteric. Uh, there are weird words, uh, or you don't quite know what it means. Uh, but I could get away with that because I'm like, well, first, uh, this armor will be fun to use whether or not they understand what the flavor text means. Uh, so all I have to do here is intrigue the kind of player who cares about flavor text. Um, whereas if I'm writing a sentence in a novel, the reader has to go through that sentence to get to the rest of the story. I can't throw in some like totally crazy shit uh, and expect them to spend an hour decoding it. Uh, so I, I have to sort of step back and say, I can't afford the sentence here. It's too expensive in terms of the reader's uh, cognitive resources. Um Whereas for Destiny, it, ideally, every single piece of flavor text would reward a couple of years of study. That's impossible, but 
ideally, if we were like all supercomputers. <laughs> well, I think you found the audience who enjoys those uh, those flavor texts. We have a we usually have on our show before we really get into the main episode a, a segment called Ignored Lore, where we will find. Um, like blue or green sets of uh, yeah. armor that usually just get dismantled oh, right God. away. And so we, we kind of analyze the text on those pieces because most people, oh, if it's if it's not a legendary or exotic, they just trash it. So a lot of it gets ignored. So we do a, an ignored lore segment. It was a tragedy. So uh, like my first, my first week at Bungie, <laughs> I walked in there and they were like, uh, so here's an Excel spreadsheet. Um, fill it up with descriptions of all the armor. And, uh, I was like, so what is, what is the armor? And they were like, we don't know. Go talk to Tyson. Um, so Tyson Green, the investment lead, great guy. Uh, I go over and I was like, Tyson, hi, I'm the new man. Uh, how, what is armor? How does it work? And he very patiently walked me through the whole rarity system. He was like, here's the greens. They're going to be the white is what you start with. The green is the early drops. Uh, does it go green, blue? Yep. Uh, yeah. Blues yep. are rares. So I heard rare and I was like, oh, rare. They're going to be using those. <laughs> and I, I remember he told me, like, listen, everything up to purple is trash. Only the purple will matter. But I, I guess I didn't hear him. So I worked my ass off on flavor text for everything from white up yeah, to... Yeah, so the rare items are amazing. Yeah, like, and I was like, I rare, that sounds important. And uh, there's even... um. In the order the armor appeared on our our internal spreadsheet, there's even like little threads of story. Uh, and I don't think all these items even spawn, but they've probably been data mined. Anyway, so by the time we got to the purples, I was like, oh shit, uh, I'm running out of ideas. <laughs> and the purples ended up pretty good because they got a couple passes. But the exception was uh, the future war cult, New Monarchy, and... Uh, Dead Orbit, Dead Orbit. Uh, legendaries, we had, or I had, this is entirely my fault, I had no idea <laughs> they would be like these big endgame things. Uh, and we just <laughs> ran, we ran out of time to give them good flavor text. So they're just all like, <laughs> here's a leg made by Dead Orbit, like, yep. here's a sweet helmet from New Monarchy. And I just, it kills me, like, why did I not take the effort I put on the greens and put it on... The, the faction armor. Oh my god! And that's awesome. And I don't think even since the the faction armor has gotten good flavor text, it's all still like keeping to that tradition. Oh yeah. The crucible. Some of the some of the armor has that, but a lot of and it's the same with Iron Banner, where almost all the Iron Banner weapons are just a precision weapon crafted yep. by the Iron same Lords. Thing. A heavy same weapon crafted by the Iron when Lords. when we did those strings, I wasn't even clear on what Iron Banner was or whether it would be in the game or if it would end up like uh, some other stuff that is probably in the game now, but I won't talk about. Uh, <laughs> all right. And, uh, oh God, I, I had something else on the tip of my tongue I was going to mention. Oh, right. Um, so... There's uh, Strike Armor and Crucible Armor. Um, mm -hmm. I think those are both rares. I don't remember. But the idea was, if you were a PvE player, you'd be doing a lot of strikes and you'd get the strike drops. And if you were a Crucible player, you'd be getting the Crucible drops. So I came up with this system where the Crucible flavor text would all be much more like... Um, sort of like sports team 
style, there would be more weird characters like hashtags and stuff. Uh, the text mm-hmm. would be a little more competitive and edged. Mm-hmm. And then the strike armor would be much more about how guardians relate to the city and to the combatants out in the solar system and their role in the broader universe. And I have no idea if any of that succeeded because I don't know if those drops are actually retained or if they're just sort of, hey, nice, uh, trash. <laughs> <laughs> Well, since we started doing our ignored lore, you don't. You, I mean, you can't imagine how many people have said, "Oh my gosh!" Now I read everything before I trash it, and it's so good. It's a it's a common comment that we hear, and so it's uh, it's it's no longer well. At least the people that, that listen to us, uh, those things are no longer kind of going unnoticed. So yeah, well, there there may or may not have been a, a raid going on at one point where a certain X-ray <laughs> had like three greens drop during a boss fight for some reason, and then proceeded to die while reading the flavor well, text of these green armor pieces, and everyone's <laughs> yelling at him. I had to read it. I couldn't not read it. <laughs> so, I need to... While we're here talking about good flavor text, I can't take all this credit for myself. I gotta say, um, my fellow writers, John Goff and Eric Robb, did great strings. Strings are like the, uh, the in-game text. Uh, mm-hmm. Lily Yu did some great stuff. Actually, uh, the strings I inherited from uh, Tyson. Tyson did a lot of great work. Um especially in the low-level gear. He really set the tone. Uh, Luke Smith did really, really good work on the raid gear. Um, nice. And oh, gear is awesome. I think Jason Jones even stepped in to edit some of the strings. So, yeah. Credit where credit's due. Nice. Absolutely. Great stuff. Man, that's that's fun. Now we're going to have to... Now we're going to have an episode looking for themes on <laughs> gear flavor text. <laughs> yeah, I... Well, we have. We we did a whole ignored piece that tells one of the story. Who's it? The story of Albion, the guy oh, in the yeah. woods. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, that was that was pretty cool. So. Yeah, all uh, the cormorant yeah, pieces. Albios. The cormorant pieces are not my fault. That was not viral marketing for my book. <laughs> uh, <laughs> okay. I think. Uh, uh-huh. Uh-huh. Uh, <laughs> so does that mean wizard cabalist ascendant wasn't either? <laughs> Uh, no, actually, it wasn't. I never thought of that. Uh, but I sold that, I think, before I started on Destiny. Um. Oh, that's good. <laughs> that's awesome. Uh, so, yeah, so we should probably jump back to the original question, uh, which was your, how did you get assigned sort of the Books of Sorrow? Oh. Uh, like, were, was, was like, a, a list of things that you could have worked on? Like, oh, no, this one looks interesting. Or did they hire you and say, hey the way you write seems perfect for this thing. So, uh, I started at Bungie full-time March before the game came out. Uh, so I assume that was 2014. Um, mm-hmm. And left the company September when the game launched. Uh, but Eric Robb, my boss, was still there. And, uh, you know, I, I like to think they were sorry to see me go. I hope. <laughs> Not like, uh, finally. Um He'll <laughs> stop committing all these strings. It was funny. Uh, one of the big time crunches we had as the writing department was that the translators had to translate everything we wrote, and those poor people, uh, especially with some of the words I used, but also we just kept producing <laughs> strings so late in the process, and they were like, you are literally going to kill us. We are going to die, and you'll have to carry our corpses out of this building because you're... 
you're just writing too much stuff. Especially because we were like, oh, and by the way, we're writing the whole grimoire. Uh, and they were like, and we have to translate that? And then they killed us. That's why I'm dead now. <laughs> it's been rough. Uh, and now I've forgotten the question. Something. Oh, the books of sorrow. Uh, so the designers set up the uh, Touch of Malice quest. Um, mm -hmm. And Eric Robb told me, hey, we've got this 52 Grimoire card opportunity. Uh, and I really think we should do a serialized story where it's like one thing spread over 52 cards. And I was like, yeah, I would totally love to do that. Uh, and I spent like six months either not doing it or false starting, <laughs> like just not getting it right at all. And finally, Eric was like, so how's that going? Uh, and we decided we'd meet up and work on it at Bungie. Uh, so they flew me out there very kindly. And in like a week, I just busted out uh, pretty much what we have there. Um, wow. With the aid of uh, a lot of great conversations with other people there. A lot of beer. <laughs> Does that answer the question? Like, uh, yeah. Yes. I, I think Eric, Eric felt that I was a good fit for... We didn't know when we started that it was going to be the Books of Sorrow. Uh, we just knew we had 52 cards to play with. Uh, and I was like, uh, this being for the Taken King, we should do the epic history of the Hive. So that's what we did. Well, it certainly seems like your, your voice and the way you write really set the overall tone and feel for that story. For the Books of Sorrow? Uh, yes. Yeah, I, I mean, I... I believe I wrote it all. I that is probably the thing that is most uniformly my work in Destiny. It's interesting because I've often speculated about uh, there are a few cards that just don't fit. <laughs> They're like written in a completely different voice and different tone. And I've always wondered if the books were written primarily by one person and then like some other person who had no knowledge of what the other person had written just wrote a card and it got stuck in there <laughs> or like it didn't pass an editing phase well if you if you so. pick them out i'm happy to talk about them uh as long as i don't say yeah. anything secret <laughs> uh, i will i'll bring up my notes on the i have there's probably 50 <laughs> collected pages of notes about the books of sorrow that i've written yeah so. i think we can cover all that in this episode yeah though. Well, <laughs> we would we would be here all night and i would fall asleep <laughs> we'll just kind of shows. Going off the fifty-two different parts, um, you know, how did that constructing that kind of story kind of differ from working on you know, item descriptions and grimoire cards? Kind of, what was the the difference there? Were, were you ever concerned maybe some players wouldn't find all fifty-two fragments and then wouldn't get the whole story? Or no, I was confident the entire thing would be data mined, like before the game came out, <laughs> which it absolutely uh, was. I think it was. Yeah, yeah it was. So. I can guarantee that, I that read it before I had all 52, so... Yep. Oh, yeah. We were reading it, like, <laughs> <laughs> the the day of the year two update when all that went to the database. Mm -hmm. I remember we were yep. all sitting in chat and... Thanks, and Baxter. And, yeah. <laughs> Beta was like, have you seen the Books of Sorrow? And I was like, what are you talking about? And he sends me this link, and I'm like, oh, my God. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, the day it was data mined, I wrote a huge Reddit post and I basically pulled, I mean, I read the whole thing at once. Like I just sat down and busted through every single yeah. card and absorbed mm -hmm. it and reread it and then dissected the whole thing in my, one of my original Reddit posts. <laughs> I mean, yeah. also, yeah, but... I feel like we should just jump back a second. When I described the Books of Sorrow as uniformly mine, let's just bear in mind, of course, Destiny is the creation of Bungie. 
and I'm just yes. lucky to get to play with this stuff. Uh, okay. I, ju I just meant in terms of the actual, like, the words. I typed them with my fingers and face. <laughs> uh, but yes, um, data mining and uh, and such. I was no, I was not worried that uh, they would be read out of order or that there would be gaps. We did. Um, there were certain points in the drop order that are fixed, uh, and those are what we used as the breaks between books. Unless I screwed up, maybe that's not true anymore. Uh, it may be that only the first and last one are fixed, but I thought some of the others were fixed. Um, we uh, we just wanted to be sure that opening up any given card, you could tell where it fit in the overall story. Mm -hmm. uh, okay. Yeah. Because, like, I think Did the I... two that I pointed out on on past shows were uh, verse two four, which is fifty two and one, and then verse four two, which is majestic majestic. Both those cards are the voices so different. Uh, I think, and I think it's it's verse uh, two four that has the kill them and take their stuff line. Uh, <laughs> yep. <laughs> which which is like wh how what it seemed like this was a draft and somehow ended up in the books. Uh, all bearing in mind, of course, and I've discussed this in the past too, that the books of sorrow notoriously unreliable. Because, theoretically, we don't know this for sure, we're dealing with the written account firsthand from Oryx, so that's tainted by his experience, uh, and then it's also tainted by, and we've discussed this, how the books are translated. Yes. Like, as far as we know, nobody speaks native hive, like, <laughs> Eris might have it, like, subconsciously in the back of her brain, but, and we don't know who the translator is. Yes, yeah, so this and we also know that throughout the books, things like Savathun says, "Oh, these books are full of lies." So that's another layer of, you know, unreliability. Yes, and I I think we have a strong cultural prejudice um, towards the assumption that if you're talking to something more powerful than you, it's going to be formal. It's going to sound sort of biblical. It won't use contractions. Uh, it'll use elevated language. But I actually see no reason and find it even more unsettling to think that if you're talking to something godlike, vastly smarter than you, it's going to understand you and your language well enough to be perfectly colloquial. Um, hmm. Like, if you play Marathon, Durandal is very much smarter than the player. Uh, and Durandal yes. is also very playful, uh, and will switch between sort of poetry and highfalutin talk about escaping the end of the universe, and uh, very... Um, casual conversation uh and i think that i think that writing a godlike power as just the sort of portentous uh and pretentious uh fancy talker um really short sells how eerie and uh Strange, strange is the wrong word. How it it short sells what such an entity would be capable of. It would understand you so well. It could talk to you pretty much any way that it desired. Uh, and also, what's more important? Uh, this is a big debate in translation, but uh, I think it is far more important to get across the emotional content of a piece of writing 
than to retain any like uh, original form. So if you're translating mm-hmm. from like Hive God to English, uh, I I am not going to be super worried all the time about maintaining one tone. <laughs> because <laughs> i've often one we i've tried to use sort of colloquialisms and language that is used in the books as we know them to try and decipher the identity of the translator yes uh because there's words that are used in there that are very specific to regions or cultures or dialects uh and that could possibly reveal the identity of who who is actually translating these things mm. to us but no, no confirmed uh, identity so <laughs> yeah. far. Sorry, I was just actually uh, clicking through to that one card. <laughs> nice. <laughs> uh, but then the other two notes I have under this question are uh, your book, uh, The Trader Brew Cormorant, uh, stars a minority female character who very much has the deck stacked against her and has to persevere against uh, enormous odds. And that's very similar to Arash from The Books of Sorrow. Uh, and my question was, did you have a hand in that similarity or was that a story aspect that was already in place when you came on board? But from what you've described about how the books were written, uh, seems like you sat down and, and really ground them out. Um, yeah. So the reason I wrote the trader Baru Cormorant that way, uh, is sort of a secret, so don't tell anyone. Um, but it is, <laughs> okay. it's a response to a very specific argument I kept seeing online, uh, in discussions about what is very frustratingly called diversity, even though what it really means Mm -hmm. is allowing books to look like the real world. If, uh, if you just chose people at random rather than picking them, uh, with a really statistically skewed process, that probably made no sense. What I mean is (laughs) diversity is a frustrating term. It should really be more like normalization or, uh, debiasing. Anyway, Uh, I kept seeing arguments in uh, conversations about diversity saying like, well, it doesn't make any sense that you want me to put, say, black people in my fantasy novel. Uh, There weren't any black people in medieval England, uh, which is wrong. And it would all be super racist, so they wouldn't be allowed to do anything. uh, Because, like, they couldn't get out the door because the racism would be too intense. Uh, And so they couldn't be a hero. Or, um, well, all the women were either prostitutes or wives... So, or they were making wool. So, uh, it's just unrealistic to have a woman as a protagonist. Um, so I just wanted to write a story where the protagonist was targeted by basically every form of prejudice and, uh, systemic violence known to man. And she would still kick ass, uh, and not in a, a kick ass in a sense of like, well, she's bulletproof and amazing with a sword and doesn't give a shit, but kick ass in the sense of, she survives. Uh, she finds out ways to subvert the system. Um, she claims agency in spaces where she's not supposed to have it. So that's the Trader Bar mm-hmm. Uh I think the inspiration between Arash, Oryx, that story, is pretty different. Um, what interested me about that was trying to imagine where a culture like the hive could have come from, uh, this sort of violently, uh, xenophobic society capable of incredible destruction, but also, uh, very, very defensive. Um, if you look at the way they behave Mm -hmm. in the game, uh, it's 
it's quite conservative. They have these warrens and fortresses they hide in. Uh, their gods are sort of buried away in these other dimensions. Um, even when they attack something, it's about trying to set up sort of a new nest. Uh, mm -hmm. So what could create... And, and also they have this sense of uh, blasphemous or holy reverence for powers in the universe that they worship. Um, and I wondered what would drive a species to become like that. What would... So again, this is just my personal thought. Uh, Bungie has plans that I can't speak about. Um, but <laughs> what I was thinking about with Arash was if you're the biggest, toughest uh, antagonist to ever hit this game, where did you start? Um, what it, What is it like to be a thrall? Like, what kind of species started out as, uh, you know, those little three-eyed guys what was life like? Um, and what would drive you to make bargains with uh, powers far vaster than you and to give up so much in the name of survival? Yeah? Yeah? Does that answer the question? I guess. <laughs> Maybe not specifically enough. Yeah. <clears throat> well, I mean, I think at for what we get from the books, that the answer to that question is an oath. It's almost revenge <laughs> is yeah. worth it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but but we also learn that much much later in the books, Oryx. It seems that Oryx of all of them realizes how raw that deal was, uh, and how and and questions whether or not it was worth it. And I think that sort of drives the Oryx Oryx transformation. Of the yes, world. and I, I think you have to remember also, they started out with a raw deal. Their their original culture on fundament, uh, their doctrine was we're basically the weakest, most miserable things in the universe. We're the natural prey of everything else. Um, mm -hmm. And the whole world is ineluctably hostile to us. Uh, mm -hmm. And the best thing we can hope for is to breed and die fast enough that we can at least adapt to the things trying to kill us, which is a pretty grim deal already. Uh, and, yeah. and Arash sort of rejects that and says, we can totally be more than this. Uh, you know, we just got to make enough deals. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but I mean yeah. really what she wants is she wants to explore uh, mm -hmm. if she learns enough so, and then the third the third sort of note I had on the original question was that you've once said that gender is biology and race is destiny uh, which seems very apropos for destiny uh, and the story of the hive especially Arash uh, Oryx uh, and did you have those sort of quotes in your head while you were developing the story of, of the Books of Sorrow. All right, so uh, this is one of those things to get me in trouble if quoted out of context. <laughs> what I okay. meant was specifically, gender is biology, race is destiny. Those are hegemonic narratives propagated mm -hmm. um, by societies that want to control their citizens. So the masquerade in the Trader Bar Cormorant. Those are lies that are taught to people uh, in order to uh, maintain a social order. Um if you know any science, you know that race is not... I hope this is not a controversial statement that nobody sends me hate mail. Race has no <laughs> biological basis. It is a cultural and historical artifact, and any biological differences mm -hmm. between races are overwhelmed by the variances within the races. Um, there yeah. are populations in the world that do have interesting um, 
small biological quirks, but they are uh, they don't map to racial groups as we think of them. Um, and the same for gender as biology. Gender does have some, well, there's some biological effects of sex, but uh, gender is a much larger, more interesting construct. Uh, but I do think, in a broader sense, uh, scientifically, of course, everything about lived experience is biological. The brain is biological. Um, and that's always in my mind when I'm writing. Uh, I can't help but think of my characters as flesh computers. Because um, that's what we all are. Uh, and I, I do want to circle back around your question and make sure I say enough about, you know, how that influenced the hive. Um, actually, yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. So uh, one of the most important things to me when writing the hive and when writing any alien is to not import unexamined assumptions about humanity to another society um yes oh thank you so a a really really basic (laughs) example would be the the gender division of labor like um men are hunters and fighters and women are uh you know uh they do crucial uh but less sort of romantic um gathering and processing work and organizational work Uh, so that's a very basic gender narrative and not only does it make no sense to transfer that to another species, it makes no sense to even assume that that species would have uh, the same sort of biological sex divisions. Because look around to other species on Earth, and the range of uh, sort of sex setups is absolutely insane. You have species that change sex, you have species that uh, are hermaphroditic, uh, there's just a lot of weird stuff going on. Um, and so when you change a species biology, When you say, uh, oh, you know, the fallen are very regenerative or uh, the hive uh, are born as thrall and then sort of uh, develop into these different castes, you must uh, think about how that change biology would affect their social systems. Um, So a really basic example in the Books of Sorrow is uh, when the ambassador, uh, I hope this made it in the final draft, the ambassador from, I think, uh, one of the other courts the helium fountain maybe just eats some of the kids because he's mad or something oh the the heal yeah the helium yes, yeah and he just eats some kids i think uh and in hive <laughs> yeah. society like this is bad manners but it's nowhere near in human society if you ate babies you'd be like incredibly evil yeah. in hive society <laughs> it's like well like 99 out of 100 children die anyway so you're a jerk but you know it's not uh yeah. yeah, it's just a very different ethos. Um, yeah. So, and this is not anywhere in the document, so I, I apologize for asking a question that's not here. Uh, do you think this is one of like sort of the great freedoms of writing sort of science fiction and fantasy is that you can write these other species and races that don't have to play by these human rules and it gives you the opportunity to really open up and, and explore possibilities uh, that can break sort of like the trappings of how humans traditionally think about these things? Yes. Um, I think it's one of the vital missions of speculative literature, science fiction, fantasy, the weird, everything. I love uh, traditional literature. I love reading for all the shit they get. I love reading stories about an unhappy family in, you know, a college town being miserable. Uh, But Mm -hmm. 
The reason speculative literature is vital is that it allows us to examine contrafactuals. If you wanted to say, um, what would Earth be like if, uh, you know, we had three sexes, or if people could change their mm -hmm. genders, their sexes at will, uh, the only way to do that is a science fiction story. Um, there's nowhere you can go in our real history to tell that story. Uh, if you wanted to say, explore how geography affects the development of civilizations, uh, there's nowhere you can go on Earth where the geography is not Earth. Uh, you would have to move the map around, and then you've created a fantastic secondary world. Um, so yes, uh, to me, the great failing of speculative fiction is when it does not go all the way uh, thinking through the consequences of its speculative elements when they change some technological thing but don't think about how that would change society or uh, when they export a modern uh, you know power structure uh, to the distant future and just sort of assume that's how it would be because one of the things that I think was positively received uh, in the story of Arash is the the concept of morphs and becoming something different and how Savathun and Jivu Arath sort of kept their gendered pronouns as female, but uh, Arash slash Oryx did not. Uh, and the, it's very subtle when, when it switches to referring to as a him uh, or he and not she or her based on the king morph with king being sort of a, a male oriented pronoun. So a lot of people, I think originally wrote that, Oh, Hey, like the, this huge paracausal God of destiny is actually like a, in our language, like a transgendered character. And that's kind of awesome that like, what an amazing representation of, of the possibilities that exist there. So it was, yeah. Uh, so, so dealing with that, that sort of, and I, I question it too, because the it's, that seems not that is not uncommon for the hive. Uh, that's like a thing you can do. And like, oh, hey, I want to be I'm going to be the king now, like regardless of where I started from. Yes, um, although I'm sure at this point in hive history, where we are in Destiny, uh, your access to the morphs is much more strictly um, regimented. Oh, yeah. I mean, they don't have a ten year lifespan anymore, so uh there's this well we've always we've always speculated so one of the great speculations we've always had is, and i don't know if you can answer this if you can't that's fine uh is that if the fundament is a gas giant similar in size to say saturn or jupiter then a quote-unquote year may be different than what we we consider a year to be so like if jupiter actually takes you know seven human years to earth years to travel around the sun and the fundament is that size and that far from its star 10 years quote-unquote for a hive could actually be 70 years and their lives aren't actually that short yeah <laughs> so that is a very reasonable uh theory i i have no official statement on it one thing i would point out is that um the ancestral hive on the fundament originated from a rocky world and that they may have retained yeah. their calendar um from back then just something to think about. Uh, yo, I, I actually wanted to say something about uh, this whole idea of gender and race. Totally uh, mm -hmm. uncontroversial, safe topics. Um, one thing I <laughs> almost never see brought up in science fiction and fantasy, and one thing I'm fascinated by, is that we are really, really lucky um, 
and I know this as a psychologist, I've gone through the research, in that our species is so incredibly homogenous. We are all so alike that uh, we do not have any subspecies. Uh, there are no detectable, uh, aside from a couple almost trivial things, there are very few detectable uh, statistically significant differences in any kind of behavior between the sexes, between people from different parts of the world. And it seems like part of the reason that is, is that, um, and I mean, I shit you not, we are less genetically diverse than chimpanzees, despite having orders of magnitude more population. Chimps are fu The two uh, most diverse chimps, uh, most unrelated chimps, make the two uh, most unrelated humans look practically incestuous. Like, the chimps are just so much further apart. And the reason this is, I think this is our best theory right now, is that uh, at some point in our evolutionary past, a disaster struck and the human race was knocked down to just a few thousand people. Um, and we repopulated from that very, very narrow founding population. And the reason our, our ideals of equality and, uh, uh, you know, universal rights for everyone are possible is that uh, no one from any particular continent is going to be like 10 times stronger. Uh, there's nobody who uh, is immune to disease. Like, we are allowed mm -hmm. to say we're going to treat everyone equally under the law because of this incredible evolutionary accident. Uh, and I always wonder when I read about um, humans on another planet and like fantasy or whatever, like what happened here to get them to that same place? If that makes any sense. Like what was their equivalent of the Toba catastrophe? Uh, yeah. Because it seems to me that if something like that hadn't happened, humans would now be a much more uh, wildly variegated and crazy species like chimpanzees are. Well, so then speaking of that diversity, uh, what does that come into account at all when talking about the Taken, which is basically Oryx leveling the playing field across all these different kinds of species? And like, you're no longer what you were. Like, here's me taking apart your weakness and here's now what you are. You are Taken. <laughs> uh, like, is that dangerous in his cat? Like, if we if we know what kills one Taken, we know what kills all the Taken. Oh, that's interesting. Um, I had not thought about it that way. Uh, the So all the Taken design was done by gameplay people. Um, really cool. Uh, I really like the direction they took. Uh, fictionally, mm -hmm. um, some of what's suggested in the Taken cards is that um, they're all being armed with... They're sort of being given what they lacked. So, for example, uh, the um, uh, there are so many examples because uh, all the cards kind of follow this format. Like, uh, you know, you're an acolyte, yes. uh, and it sucks to be an acolyte. So here, have a turret. Um, yeah. <laughs> basically. Yeah. Your your weakness is X. Yeah. So I give you this knife, and this knife is, you know, the is why yeah. it cancels yeah. X. Uh, but yeah, so, I mean, that was, and that was one of the questions, like when I, when that racist destiny thing I mentioned, you know, uh, the note that I had, I think I came right from your website, which is you know, the masquerades uh, in classic ideology describes race as biological truth. 
uh, that Baru rejects, but Oryx seems to embrace. And then I mentioned the worm gods don't seem to care about race at all. Uh, they're basically like, accept symbiosis, accept this worm or die. And the hive's mission as they sort of like plowed across the universe was like, hey, accept this thing or die. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and then the Taken ignore race completely uh, to become a unified term because they're just basically being like biologically retrofit. <laughs> Uh, and they're being turned into hybrids. And I think we should be careful to separate. Um, when we talk about race ordinarily on Earth, we're talking about our cultural constructs of, um, yes, you know, yes, you yes. look like this and you fit into this historical pattern, so we'll call you a certain race. Whereas yeah. uh, a lot of the characters in Destiny have to grapple with entirely separate species. Um, yeah, yeah. And uh, the interactions between those species and their different psychologies and biologies is not just a big part of destiny's story but a big part of science fiction like yeah yeah and, and they like pardon the pun but it's like you know oryx cuts across all of them i you know if no matter how different any of them are they're they're universally linked by whatever weakness they have and oryx's ability to sort of to fill that gap and move them towards you know what we call the perfect shape yes oryx is uh the sort of hive ideology is more ontological and uh, sort of transcendentally philosophical than it is physical. So they don't really care what you look like right now. They do care whether they, they can kill you because they feel that by eliminating uh, what is unable to continue existing, they are moving the universe closer towards uh, what it has to become, what it inevitably will become. Um, yeah. and, and to them, there's, there's no choice to resist this process. You're either part of it or you're waste. Yeah. Man, I, mean, I could discuss like the philosophies of the of the hive and the taken for hours. I love it. Uh, so I think we we talked. Yeah, I mean, we talked about sort of covering car like the writing a story in fifty two parts. Uh, and well. So how did, and you, you talked about this a little bit, but writing a large, was the story written like in one huge chunk and then broken up into 52 parts? Or did you have sort of an idea for how to break this thing up prior and you knew you could write the 52 parts sort of like, okay, this will be our start and then we'll aim towards, this will be four, five, and six, and then this will be seven, eight, and nine. And um. I knew it would be 52 parts from the beginning because that was what the designers had, had bricked out for the Touch of Malice quest. Mm -hmm. um, okay. And I... The way I actually outlined them was after splitting them into books, I just wrote the titles for each card. Um, <laughs> which I should add, which I should bug you about because <laughs> the ones that are in all lowercase and the ones that are properly capitalized drive me crazy. I'm trying to figure out the secret of those things. Interesting. Huh. Um, <laughs> and apparently I will continue to yeah I mean I, I can't tell you there's like uh, something explicitly encoded in those uh, like like a you could put together the letters and get a secret message no there's nothing like that um, but the presence or absence of capitalization reflects It reflects the content and tone of of what's being described, and it reflects the state of the narrator, if that makes any sense. Um, okay. 
So I think you will find, in general, let me let me scroll through uh, all the cards. But for example, all of the uh, cards in the first book are pretty appropriately capitalized. Um, well, well. So here's an example. So verse five one is end of failed timeline. Every word is capitalized. Verse five two is strict proof eternal. Every word is lowercase. And then verse 5-3 is, I'd shut them all in cells, which ends with a period and is only capitalized like a standard English sentence. Yeah, or something like 26 star by star by star is uh, is not capitalized. Um, okay. These stylistic decisions are made to create effect. Um, and here, I, I can't tell you what the effect should be. You should... Maybe one interesting way to poke at it would be take the titles, capitalize them, or decapitalize ones that are capitalized, and look at the way that that alters the effects on you. Um, so, for example, card 33 of When the Monsters Have Dreams. Uh, there's no closing punctuation, uh, and I think that would read very differently. I'm really, really into sentence-level prose style. I think it would read very differently if it had a question mark, if it had a period... Uh, I think it would read differently if it the initial W was was uncapitalized. Uh, there's just mm -hmm. something about the way it's laid out that is correct, and I, I find it hard to explain, but it, it's correct for this story. <laughs> well, I mean, I've just there's so many of them that like a, a good one. Another one for me is verse three three fire without fuel, so it's all lowercase. But if that is a reference to the the book of Hindu aphorisms by by Baba Hari Das, then it should be appropriately capitalized if that is the reference being made either by the translator or the writer. Uh, even though, and that reference fits with sort of the tone of the card, but I don't know if the reference is intentional. And if it is intentional, then why wasn't it capitalized? <laughs> like it's just little things. Yeah, like I mean, that. I can tell you, it is not a reference <laughs> to book of aphorisms. Okay. Um, Okay, because that, that particular book deals with meditations on the nature of the mind and the world and attachments and self-realization, which is a lot of what that card that is That is awesome. So, so it, it maybe there's sort of a, a common derivation in the two titles in that they sort of talk about similar things. Um, meaning, like, the image of fire without fuel is, is very appropriate for yeah. that, that topic. Um, yeah. Right. Well, good. I mean, that that eases my mind. Point zero zero one percent. I feel like at some point in here, I should I should really speak up for the Bungie writing team. Um, and the only member I, I really know right now is Jill Shar because I got to work with her a bit. But uh, there's a great team over there doing amazing stuff, and uh, I really want to make it clear that uh, they're they're the crew of the ship right now. Um, and <laughs> nothing I say has any authority or, or meaning over what's, what's being done there. Uh, yeah. of course, of this course. is just me waxing personal about, uh, <laughs> in, a, in a sense, you need to take me as another reader of this text because there's yeah. nothing yeah. authoritative except what is actually written down there. Yeah. Well, no, that what in, in which case sort of, I, I, respect your authority as an author and somebody who's you know hugely studied in literature and these types of things for your opinion on but I, I really do encourage you uh everyone makes fun of the idea of the death of the author like once the text is written 
the author has no special authority over it. But I actually really do believe in it. Um, I think once something like this is written, it is as much up to the reader as the author. It's entirely up to the reader what it means. And the author can come to you and say, well, actually it means this, but you should only believe them if they can point to evidence in the text that supports their argument. Um, yeah. So, yeah, the, the reader, the player, is powerful. Uh, and that's part of why lore communities and stuff like that are, are so vital. I should, I should link you with my books of sorrow notes. <laughs> I would never... I never subject anybody to that willingly, but <laughs> uh, all right. So, I mean, I think that covers most of what we had down here for eight. Mm -hmm. uh, unless you want to talk about how constructing the books of sorrow differed from item descriptions and grimoire cards, but I think yeah, I think about we that talked bit. about that a little bit. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, they are in a sense <laughs> similar. It's. it's the challenge they all share is that, at least me, I desperately do not want to get repetitive. Um, with the Books of Sorrow, I really wanted each book to have sort of a distinct texture, but I do regret, I feel, towards the end, um, once they uh, get past the midpoint, I worry it becomes too abstract and too much a cycle of them killing alien civilizations and doing philosophy. But actually, I think there are a couple episodes towards the end that... <laughs> that really do work very well. I really like the encounter with the Vex. Um, so I, I guess yes. I'm not I'm not fretting too much here. Writers... Well, if there's one... Sorry, uh, go ahead. Just, uh, but as with flavor text and grimoire cards, you don't want to use the same formal structure on each one, meaning uh, you want to mix up how they read on the page, not just the content, but like mm -hmm. literally how they look. Um, and you, you always feel, at least I always feel that I am... I'm trapped inside this invisible bubble and there are great ideas outside it and I have to find a way outside the bubble. Um, and so there's this certain fear when you write a piece of flavor text or a grimoire card that fine, you pick something okay, but by choosing what you've chosen, you have given up on all the other things you might have achieved if you just kept working a little harder. Um, and, you know, that's that's something you got to beat. But yeah, that that's what those all share for me that challenge <laughs> so uh that said and i mentioned a few of these earlier uh there are quite a few similarities especially given word use uh syntax structuring between your non-destiny writing and your destiny writing and i was wondering if that was intentional as a signature of your work so people would read that and go oh man i know this is seth dickinson this is amazing uh or are these just maybe particular words or themes you like or something else entirely? Interesting. Uh, it is not intended as a specific brand. Um, I think I do have very specific interests that I often come back to. Uh, so much of the Books of Sorrow is this sort of uh, grappling with and trying to express this idea of um, the sword logic and the sort of tautological nature of... Uh, the Hive Ideal, which is sort of this um, self-sustaining, endless, uh, self-defining process that is no longer dependent on any outside thing to exist. Um, mm -hmm. And so I, I often come back to ideas like that. Uh, I, I'm very interested in what allows 
societies and, and species and ideas to succeed in the universe um, into how we've gone from the sort of cork glue on soup to what we have now. Uh, like, how did we get from there to here? And uh, if you're not religious, it's a very interesting puzzle because it's really remarkable that the laws of the universe were set up in such a way as to permit um, complexity to arise. And mm -hmm. the most satisfying and elegant answer is that there's something inevitable about complex systems. They arise from the way that uh, they arise from uh, an unordered state because they provide some advantage in the ability to go on existing. Like DNA, for instance, uh, pops out of the early chemical soup because it's a molecule with the ability to recruit uh, atoms around it to make more of itself. And that's an incredibly valuable capability if you want to keep on existing. Um, so that idea of, of how to come into being and continue being, uh, which uh, Ian Banks described so well in Use of Weapons, is, uh, is a really big signature in my writing. But you mean like word use mm -hmm. and stuff like that. And some of that is just that uh, I wish I could be... Well, originally... Sorry, go ahead. So originally, it was just I noticed in some of the titles of some of the things you've written. I'm like, oh, there's a reference to cephalopods. I wonder if that's a Pahanan thing. Or like Worth of Crows is Prince Aldrin and like Wizard Cabalist Ascendant. All three of those words appear in Destiny. And I think Cormorant's the biggest one. Uh, uh, interesting. The, but you got to remember... The current title... All of those... <laughs> the current title in our Slack channel... Slack channel is the Trader Baru Cormorant Seal. <laughs> oh, jeez. But <laughs> you got to remember, all those things were written before I had any idea what Destiny was. Yeah, that's why I included the dates here. And, uh, <laughs> yeah, so I, I can't take any credit for any of those things. The Cormorant Seal, <laughs> I think, was a um, uh, Barry, uh, who I think is the lead. Oh, God, I feel awful. Uh, <laughs> he's, I think he's the art design lead. He's a big deal. Barry's a big deal. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think the Cormorant Seal was his, his string. Um, awesome. Those were also very interesting strings because when they were written, they were describing what the, like, uh, the stuff you could, the swag you could buy from the speaker back in D1. Was the Cormorant Seal one of those? Most. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, the Titan Mark. I, I think most of those strings were originally written with no idea what the item looked like. But I, I could be wrong. I think they got rewritten with the art in mind. Yeah, and a lot of the Cormorant Seal stuff comes from Ariana from the first Crota Fire yes. team yep. thing. She she always, when she introduces herself at the beginning of any text, she mentions that she's the bearer of the Cormorant mm -hmm. Seal. Uh, Christopher Barrett, is that who you're yes, referring yes. to? Yeah, that is Barry. Uh, yeah, it was actually really... Uh, I really hate reading... Uh, any work involving multiple authors and feeling that the authors are not talking to each other and they have their own pet characters <laughs> and their own pet <laughs> ideas. Um, I hate that. It it kills my sense that I'm reading about a real place. Uh, so one of my favorite things at Bungie, one of the, the biggest small satisfactions, was to pick up ideas introduced by different creators and try to get them to play with each other and to, to work with other people's stuff. Because... There's just something about it that makes you feel better about yourself. Like, 
you're not there to introduce your own great characters and have them beat up all the other characters so you can have the best Destiny Grimoire card characters. No, you're there to tell good <laughs> stories with mm -hmm. all these really brilliant people's work. Well, whoever created Tevis Larson won. Cause he's Interesting. <laughs> I think he's he or she is after my time, I think. Yeah, he's the gray, the gray hunter turned away from the tribe. Ah, cool. uh, so we have a, a question that came from our Slack chat, which is, when you view the discussions about the lore and how the grimoire are written, do you feel that people tend to overthink each letter of an entry, or are you pleased to see this level of detail when somebody's approaching your work? Uh, you talked about that a little bit already. And the follow-up there is, are there any fan theories that you really love or have surprised that, you? That question I'm... came from, sorry, that question came oh. from uh, Captain Kex. Just wanted to throw that out there. Kex Hi, Captain me. Kex. Uh, I am very always super happy, uh, really excited to see that level of scrutiny. Um, the trade-off, of course, is when people get really deep into analyzing every line, sometimes they will uh, sort of rabbit hole off in a direction that's not going to yield anything. Um, mm -hmm. But there's stuff like... Uh, I, I really did try to, to make everything rewarding. Uh, like the time codes that appear on uh, the transmissions, like uh, Ghost Fragment Darkness 1, um, mm -hmm. are not random. Uh, there's a logic to how those letters and numbers are laid out. Um, oh, we we, dice, we we did a whole series of episodes on Rasputin and the Warmind where we dissected every second of, of the collapse. Awesome. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so my hope was, like, if somebody actually pulls apart this, like, NNI, whatever string... Uh, they'll have an idea of, of what, um, what this timestamp means. And I actually am very proud. It's such a dorky thing to be proud about, but, uh, the transmissions Rasputin sends that are meant to be read by human eyes. Uh, the timestamps show much more time between the beginning and the end than the ones that are meant to be read by other machines. Um, I, I just always thought that was a neat touch. <laughs> um, yeah, so I'm very happy to have that level of scrutiny. I am very relieved that, to my knowledge, we haven't fucked anything big up. Like, uh, <laughs> I think the timeline is probably a little tough to resolve right now, like where exactly everybody was and who knew who. Uh, but it's it's probably probably safe. <laughs> yeah, it's. I, I originally came to this podcast because I had built a website with another member, uh, Scooby DZ, uh, destinytimeline.com, where we dug into all the grimoire and tried to establish a beginning and ending timeline to everything that we right, know right. in Destiny. Cool. Yeah. And I have I think these fan works are incredibly valuable. I have no doubt that um, there are probably people at Bungie referencing uh, fan timelines and, and wikis and stuff like that. Because... <laughs> You'd be shocked how um, how much overhead is required to organize a bunch of fictional information. It is a big, tough project. Um, and when you're under crunch and stuff like that, uh, there's often not time to sit everyone down and make sure everyone's dates are square. Um, so you've got to... Eric Robb was great at this. Eric was always very good at making sure uh, people did not contradict each other and that everything worked out.
Hey everybody, X-Ray here. Just wanted to share with you some of the content that we're getting from our listener chat. This one comes from Mad Pygmy, his friend and clanmate, Gain Mide from the Rise of Oberon clan. Gave us this juicy gem of an audio track. You can check out Gain Mide over at SoundCloud or Reverb Nation. Hope you enjoy it, and look forward at the end of the episode, along with the links in the description. Thanks. Hey guys, Handsome Dragon here. Uh, We just want to take a minute to apologize for some interference that occurs during the last part of this podcast. We debated on whether to cut it out completely or not. We chose the latter. The content is too good not to share, even through the technical issues. We hope you understand, and thanks for listening. If you're looking for more of my short stories, they are all linked on my website. So oh, okay. Right. Um, I actually, I wanted to say a little more about, uh, I feel like I, I sort of shortchanged the question about whether uh, my similarities in word use, syntax, structuring, whatever, were oh. intentional. Um, it actually often really bothers me when I find myself falling back on the same structure across many works and i guess it's inevitable every writer has their own style but i wish desperately that i could um like some writers can that i could write like jane austen or i could write like cormac mccarthy and switch between those modes um because i I worry right now that my writing is very cold and sort of a little difficult in that it's got a lot of weird clauses and big words and I, i would sort of like to be able to write something that's just um, a sort of warm, natural storyteller's voice, like uh, I think Neil Gaiman is very good at, or Connie Willis. Yes. Um, yeah, yeah. But at the same time, I think you know when I was reading through a lot of your work and the way you sort of structure things and your your syntax and your word usage and the way, especially with a lot of these interesting strings, you know, establishing as sort of like a signature of your work, uh, William Gibson came to my mind. Uh, with the sort of the unique way he structures things and uses language and uses words to mean other words or invents whole new words like cyberspace. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. And across a lot of his works, you can his signature is easy to identify. That is true. Yeah, or like Neil Stevenson, I think, similar there. Yeah. So I have a, I have a question that isn't on here that I've been thinking about. Um, so like I said, I'm, I'm about halfway through your your book. 
and plan on finishing it, obviously. But I'm also a commuter, so I listen to a lot of audiobooks. And I was just wondering if you have listened to, like, the version of your book through, like, Audible. And do you have to do you have any any opportunity to like approve or, or choose like who your readers are how does how do you know anything about that process or how that works i honestly don't and uh i know i have an audiobook i have never been able to get more than a couple sentences through any reading of any of my work because it it makes me cringe i'm like oh i should have this sounds so bad right i should have made it better uh except for kate baker at clark's world who just says the greatest voice. Um, so I can usually listen to a couple pages of her before I overwhelmed. <laughs> uh, as for the audiobook version of the novel, I, I'm going to sound insane. I was told I was consulted about pronunciation and stuff. I'm sure I was. I have no memory of it. It's gone. <laughs> Maybe I was abducted by aliens shortly afterwards and just blacked out that time. Uh, Certainly the pronunciations I heard were not what I would have picked, but I bet that's my fault. These people do really uh, hard work, and I'm, I'm very grateful that they that someone read my book into a microphone. That's actually really cool. Um, but no, I, I have nothing to tell you about that process. I don't know anything. Yeah, I just, I always, I've always found that fascinating, and there will be books that I really want to read and don't have the time, so I'll, I'll switch over to the audio version, and then I will occasionally be like i can't listen to this person read this book (laughs) you know i'm afraid they're i feel like sometimes they're not doing it justice to what i i've kind of already got this vision in my head or the sound in my head of of you know how it's being told and so i just was yeah i just wasn't sure but but that's that's so cool i work I worry about that when we when we read grimoire uh, cards, too. or when we when we read from the books of sorrow, like to make sure that we have the tone and the intention correct, and then somebody hears us say it and is like, "No, I thought that would be totally different." And that's not how I hear it in my yeah, head. Yeah, absolutely. I you know the the few cards that I've read, I don't you know I don't want to influence anyone's perception of of what's being said, and so I try to go into this whole monotone non <laughs> just just zero you know kind of of, of influence and it's it's tough but man at the same time you get a lot of when you get feedback says man that was good you kind of want to keep doing it to help people out and and i can i definitely definitely love you know having audio versions of things available again because i don't have the time and and i do have a lot of wasted time in my commutes that that uh can be filled by things other than you know npr and and mindless music so (laughs) All right. Well, you know, but, I think I think though. Oh, go ahead. Yeah, I was just gonna say, like, I, don't worry too much about about pleasing everyone with your read because it's like putting on a play. Uh, there's not going to be one definitive version. Different reads of the same text can create different effects. So, you choose one set of effects, and maybe somebody else wants something else, but. Like, don't put yourself down. That's what I'm saying. Yeah, yeah. No, no. You're doing a good job. <laughs> Thanks. People like you. Well, so I think I think something, you know, back where we left off and, and Drop kind of made this point in a little chat thing we have going on. Um, did you, uh, were there any any specific uh, fan theories that you really liked or, or ones that maybe surprised you, threw you for a loop or you weren't huh. quite sure of? Yeah, uh, before I jump to an answer, let me open up. Our destiny lore. How do you pronounce that? <laughs> uh, 
Um, yeah, I mean, I... Am I going to get sued if I say I read fan theories? Is that is that legal? No. Well, no, I think it's all... You're really active on... I'm work, not really active. And, I'm a little active. Well, not re- More active than as somebody who's been directly involved in some of these things, but you have provided answers via Reddit that have made my work as a researcher so much easier. That's good. That's good. <laughs> uh, like the Rasputin's contingency and Maya and Kioma's skeletons. Uh, you've mentioned yourself the unreliability of the Books of Sorrow, and that, that makes, as somebody who researches and presents this content, knowing that, oh, no, hey, listen, I can definitively say X, you know, prevents a million people from writing me angry emails saying no but it's like ah i have it from a direct source but you've got to bear in mind uh what i say outside the game and outside the grimoire has you know bungie may decide to go to do something else with mm-hmm. one of, of course, those of uh but yeah but it's like if you say hey you got to stay aware that the books of sorrow you know are potentially unreliable you know and then i say hey the books of sorrow potentially unreliable and somebody writes me an angry letter saying the books of sorrow are gospel every word is true <laughs> you're saying i can't be sure that oryx is not ticklish <laughs> that, oh, would man. Really war- um, that would ruin here's, me here's an anecdote about the books of sorrow i probably shouldn't tell uh <laughs> so um in verse uh four three wow the roman numeral looks like three I'm confused. The verse called When the Monsters Have Dreams, um, <laughs> which is narrated yeah. implicitly, uh, I think, by Oryx. Um, yes. And uh, he runs into his or- dad, who's wearing glare goggles. Uh, <laughs> and in the original draft, this is one of the only things I, I couldn't get through, there were sunglasses. He had, uh, he had triple lens sunglasses. <laughs> and... Uh, <laughs> Eric was like, Seth, you, you can't have Oryx's dad wearing sunglasses. Like, it's just, it's too much. It's ridiculous. And I was like, but it's like this David Lynch surrealist dream experience. No, no sunglasses. Uh, so we were talking about whether uh, we, I have any favorite fan theories. Um, God, I feel like if I pick one, I'll... Uh, I don't know. Break something. No. Uh, yeah, no. If you can't, if you can't, don't don't do it. I mean, it's not a, it's not a big deal. Yeah, you know, it's, 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 we, well, we understand. Throw me throw me a few fan theories that that stick out to you as big ones. I'm not going to talk about anything about the Exo Stranger uh, <laughs> okay. or like I can't say anything interesting. But uh, yeah, I mean, so I think not that you can confirm or deny, and that's totally fine. But like one of the the most insane fan theories yeah. that we have to deal with on a daily basis. <laughs> is Dwindler's Ridge and the identity of Dredgen Yor. Oh, interesting. Yeah. So uh, I can take no credit for that. That was John Goff's story. Nice. Um, John did a great job with those. I I think he even wanted to make a comic. I don't know if that's... That'd be amazing. It'd be cool. (laughs) Uh, Are you guys familiar with, in Star Wars, the uh, bigger Luke theory? Bigger Luke. Bigger Luke. Uh, no, but I'm dying here about <laughs> the that. bigger Luke conspiracy. It's uh, it's God. It's like my favorite fan theory in anything ever because it's so inane. Uh, really? More than Darth Darth Jar Jar? It's Darth oh, Jar Jar. Gosh. The thing about Darth Jar Jar is that if it were true, it would make a big difference to your interpretation. Um, I guess. That's but <laughs> the, the bigger Luke <laughs> hypothesis is uh, 
a very straight-faced <laughs> argument that there are two versions of Luke Skywalker in the Star Wars movies, uh, regular Luke and bigger Luke, <laughs> and that uh, you you could, and that bigger Luke is maybe one one inch, two inches taller, um, and uh, you can you can. This theory is based on comparisons of the height of Luke Skywalker and Han Solo. Uh, and then there are all these variations, like R2-D2 is projecting bigger Luke into the world. Um, and that Biggs, <laughs> Biggs Darklighter is a direct hint that uh, that bigger Luke is real, because, you know, his name is Biggs. Uh, anyway. All right, all right. Let's... <laughs> but wait, so when Leia says you're pretty short for a stormtrooper, that's exactly. small Luke? That small that's Luke. Small Luke. Exactly. <laughs> you, you can see the Matrix. Uh. <laughs> well, thanks everybody. This has been a great podcast. And <laughs> all right, all right. So back to Destiny. Uh, I I enjoy reading uh, theories about who is secretly Savathun or. Uh, oh, these are great. Yeah. yeah. Um. I all right, all right. Honestly, <laughs> my favorite fan stuff to read about is when people pick up on connections between historical guardians. Because there's this whole sort of crazy Guardian soap opera with all these legendary <laughs> Guardians who all kind of knew each other. Uh, and I just like reading theories about their relationships and, and stuff like that. Uh, not in a romantic sense, but just like who knew who and, and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Um, ah, God, yeah. Well, I mean, we were just we were just recently given this tidbit that, you know, before they were Guardians, they were the Risen so there was this entire generation of ghost-empowered beings called the Risen. And now there's this theory that this is, I'll take, not that I take credit for the theory, but I firmly believe it, like this card about Rezul Azir, who's actually the speaker, which is what I believe. Uh, and sort of, there's all these stories of guardians and the Risen who came before us. Interesting. For what you're saying, sort of like, hmm. where they where they fit in. Cool. But I mean, this is like this is our feel. Like we we feel this stuff on a daily basis. <laughs> so it's yeah. We've heard some pretty some pretty out there stuff. I uh, huh. Yeah, I, I feel like I can't comment on anything really interesting because yeah, it, no. it would seem to put weight yeah. behind something. Right. Uh, no, no, I I remember yeah. I was really active in the Halo fan community. Um, in talking about the story and kind of the gap between Halo two and three, I think was the peak of everybody theorizing. You know, who are the forerunners? What was the purpose of uh, the Halo array beyond Killing Flood? Mm-hmm. Um, and there were all these clues dropped in Halo 2 about uh, certain characters' agendas and stuff that we just went nuts over. And I remember how odd it was for me when I heard that uh, they were going to bring the forerunners up as enemies in Halo 4. Because it had seemed so plain from all the evidence since the first game that the Forerunners were just humans. Uh, it, it was just so weird to have all that. It can be very disorienting when, when you get new canonical information. Sometimes all your theories go away. Yeah, that's... Yeah, and it's interesting too because like, sometimes we'll have to make the comment to you know, fans or someone who puts a theory out there. You, sometimes you just have to take the game mechanics for game mechanics and realize yes. that not That's everything true. in the game has I try to, lore connotations. My personal inclination is to fictionalize um, as many of the game mechanics as I mm-hmm. can, but 
I am obviously not in charge of game mechanics or fiction at, at Bungie, so uh, that's mm-hmm. just my, my personal philosophy. I do really, really like that um, Destiny has incorporated the resurrection and immortality of its characters into the fiction. I love that. Mm-hmm. Yes, yes. Yeah, I think it, it, the Destiny as a whole does a great job, um, great job with that. There's, like, for the most part, the mechanics play into the lore. Yeah, and another... Another thing I really love is that uh, guardians are not soldiers, uh, you know, trained from from teenagerdom or whatever. It actually makes a lot of sense that guardians are kind of wackos out there and will do things like race around on their sparrows, uh, <laughs> dance on, corpses. yeah, yeah, uh, do stuff like that. Wear the corpses of their enemies. Exactly, because uh, and it provides a fictional layer for you know these guys are players and uh, they're not always going to take the world so seriously. And similarly, Guardians are just kind of, uh, Guardians have interesting psychology, I think. Everybody's going to have different coping mechanisms. Hmm. Although maybe, maybe that is my favorite fan theory, which is that Destiny is really the reverse telling of Pathways into Darkness. Oh, interesting. <laughs> huh. Interesting. Let's see. Uh, so, so on a, the next question, uh, and this is a short one, really. Uh, the books of sorrow are generally generally highly regarded and considered to be many uh, one of the standout best aspects of the Taken King, uh, especially considering the uh, initial launch opinions about the story and destiny. Uh, so how do you feel about the way your work was presented? Uh, and do you wish there's anything that could have been done differently? Oh, God. I mean, I feel so grateful just to have been able to work on it. Um, I'm really glad we have a space to do written fiction. At, at some length, uh, I feel incredibly grateful I got to do a whole 52-card story. Uh, mm-hmm. I feel grateful that um, I was able to, to come back in as a freelancer and write this without the existing writers, you know, the writers on the team now saying, uh, you know, well, hold on there. Uh, <laughs> uh, no, I, I, it feels churlish to complain about anything. I guess um, if there's one general wish i have for all games uh it's that i the attitude in general i think is that players who really really care about fiction are a small minority compared to players who just care about the the moment by moment gameplay and that's probably true Mm -hmm. but i think the players who care about the fiction are opinion drivers in a way that matters Uh, i think uh, dark souls for example would not be nearly as popular as it is without the huge communities of people talking about the lore. I think it would not be as popular as it is without the way the gameplay presents that lore. I think um, Half-Life really thrived on people getting attached to the characters in Half-Life 2 Mm -hmm. and the quality of its writing. I think even Halo. uh, I bet if you went into statistics, a large chunk of people who played Halo probably only played the single player. and I, I think they were probably motivated by wanting to know what happens. Uh, and by the fact that it was really, really fun. But mm-hmm. but yeah. uh, I, I think the story does matter. So, God, how did I get on this topic? Uh, <laughs> my wish for games in general is that I really hate the feeling that I've gone to the effort of learning something about the universe. Like I read the Codex, or I uh, picked up a novel. Uh and then finding out that kind of what I've learned doesn't seem to be important to the game itself. Um, 
I always really like it when the fiction and the game are well integrated and when the game you play has nods to the fiction. And I think, uh, from what I know, the Taken King was actually really good about that. Uh, mm -hmm. There were in-game uh, references to the Vault of Glass Grimoire, uh, stuff yep. like that. So that's really cool. Uh, I hope that, that continues. Bioware is also really good at that with like Dragon Age and Mass Effect. Yeah, they are very good. Uh, one of my problems with Mass Effect was I really enjoyed uh, <laughs> Chris Latois, I don't know how to pronounce his name, uh, was a big codex writer in Mass Effect 1. And he set out a <laughs> lot of the hard science fiction physics of how space combat and stuff worked in Mass Effect. And, and uh, they just proceeded to ignore that stuff, which I thought was a shame. Yeah. <laughs> I thought it was a shame because... And Destiny did this too with the space battle in the Taken King. Every time a science fiction video game wants to do a space battle, they basically do it like Star Wars. We're going to have a bunch of ships swooping around in close quarters, uh, you know, exchanging laser blasts. And, you know, it looks good. That, that cutscene was spectacular. But what <laughs> bothers me is I feel there's a huge uh, visual um, language out there still unexplored except by maybe like Battlestar Galactica, which is the language of, of modern uh, sort of naval combat, where tension is not um, somebody sitting next to you, pounding at you with guns, but uh, something is out there and it's highly lethal, and whoever sees the other one first is going to fire uh, you know, a salvo of missiles, and then there's this desperate attempt to jam them, to shoot them down with your close-in weapon system. Uh, to return fire, and I think, in a way, that's more narratively powerful because it's much easier to understand, you know, whether or not your heroes have been hit by a missile than whether it matters that they've been hit by 600 laser blasts or 700. Anyway, I'm sorry, I'm completely off on the tangent. I just think if I was a cutscene person, which I'm not, I would love to explore the uh, kind of composition and uh, visual work you could do with that. Um, yeah, I, I'm sorry, I feel and like I'm babbling. <laughs> no, no. Not at all. well, I think well, you mentioned space combat. Yeah, you know, I think one of the big things that is often unexplored in terms of is that I mean, space is fully three dimensional, right? It's not like naval battle where you have ships spread out over two D plane on water. Space, you can go up, down, in, out, left, right. Uh, and like I've watched a lot of videos of like Eve Online does this really well. When you watch a space battle between a bunch of live players unfold in real time. It's like an enormous sphere of ships as they all position in three-dimensional space uh, yeah. versus things like when we see that blast emanate from the Dreadnought, it, it appears it blasts like a shockwave like on a two-dimensional plane. When the Death Star explodes, you know, there's that ring explosion that looks like it's on a two-dimensional <laughs> plane rather than yeah. the, the, the 3D reality of space. Right, it's a sort of Praxis shockwave effect. Um, yeah. That is true. Uh Yeah, I guess I don't have anything clever to add except that it's, it's, it's tough for it's tough for readers to hold a three dimensional readers for viewers to hold a three dimensional composition in their heads. Yeah. yeah. All right. So, so that that takes us to our next question, uh, which is: Who are some of your favorite? authors and or influencers and do you have a favorite book or story that really impacted you or sent you in a particular direction in your own work oh god all right this might get uh this might get lengthy i really love reading <laughs> i read a lot 
and I know the problem here is I'm just not going to remember everything. Uh, some some authors I really love: um, Cormac McCarthy, Yoon Ha Lee. Uh, oh God, so many. Um, <laughs> Hilary Mantel who wrote Will Fall, uh, Doomsday Book by Connie Willis. Uh, you know, the greats, Gibson. Uh, I really loved Gibson. Mm. As a kid, I read a lot of David Brin. Um, CJ Cherry is a fantastic writer. She's, I think, the unsung influence behind a lot of modern science fiction. Uh, oh, boy. Um, Jeffrey Eugenides. I like some of his work a ton. Uh, Alistair Reynolds was a big influence me, on me when I was younger. Uh, Revelation Space. It was a, clearly a big inspiration for Mass Effect. Um, oh, God. Uh, I'm just going to call up a list because <laughs> I know I've answered this question before. Uh, Cameron Hurley, who's now a professional acquaintance of mine, so I feel bad every time I recommend her. It's like nepotism. Uh, <laughs> I really love Cameron Hurley's work. It's really visceral. Uh, everyone uses that word, but I literally mean her work is full of viscera. Like, there's a lot of intestines and, uh, and goo. Um, her first novel, God's War, is set on a world where the technology runs on bugs, just inexplicably. Like, uh, I pulled open the, the hood of my car and, like, checked the cockroach tank, and I was like, oh, shit, my cockroaches are dead. I've got to replace the cockroach tank, or my car won't work. Um, like, and the characters will just wake up and be like, yeah, there's a half-foot-long bug crawling on me. And I flicked it off in irritation, and I'm like, oh my god! <laughs> uh, Alright, so Cameron Hurley, oh uh, god, who else I got? Uh, I'm, I'm actually calling up an interview with myself to uh, to look at the... <laughs> to see yeah, what you I said? Because I know there will be so many people I forgot. <laughs> oh, Ursula Le Guin! Ursula Le Guin was a huge deal. Um, her prose style uh, is like so beyond me she can say the most beautiful things with like no words like basic words from like a kindergarten dictionary she can assemble the most stunning sentences i don't know how she does it um uh blah 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 who else we got uh this is a, a young adult book called name verity by elizabeth wine i really really loved um not a not a book, but Sid Meier's Office Centauri was a, a mm -hmm. book I adored. Uh, man, I I'm forgetting everything. Uh, we kind of put you on the spot. So. No, no, it's okay. I, I just I feel like this always happens uh, when you ask authors for their favorite writers, they choke up. <laughs> um, <laughs> favorite book or story that really impacted me. Uh, you know as soon as we stop this chat, I'm going to remember the perfect one. <laughs> but uh, I, would, I would say uh, David Brennan was a big influence on me as a kid. Um, uh, Catherine Valenti. God, so now I'm like friends with her too now that I'm a writer. But uh, she was a huge influence on me. Her most famous books are uh, the incredibly named uh, The Girl Who Circumnavigated Fairyland in a Ship of Her Own Making. Uh, I think that was a New York Times bestseller, but she is she has a natural ability to write prose so lush that you have to stop reading it because you feel physically full, like you've eaten it. Uh, it's just really, really quite something. 
Um, yeah. All right. I'm, I'll stop there on writers. Nice. But, uh, Oh, the other thing that influences me a lot is I am really interested in good cinematographers and good directors. And the way uh, there's a very specific type of movie I tend to be attracted to. Uh, Children of Men is probably my favorite movie ever. Almost entirely for the camera work. Um, it taught me this great lesson about how to do violence in, in prose and in a film, which is the more the camera tries to sell the violence the less you believe in it so for example uh if you're trying to shoot uh one of your characters hitting another with a toaster if you smash cut when the toaster hits uh you're kind of telling the viewer um hey that hurt a lot and it works it'll get a visceral response but if as in children of men you just hold the shot while one of your characters beats the other one to death with a toaster uh, and you don't flinch it's far far more disturbing um, because you're just watching it happen. There's no uh, artificial attempt to sell the violence to you. <laughs> anyway, uh, yeah, so I like Alfonso Cuaron. I like uh, the Birdman guy, although I did not like The Revenant that much. Um, really? Yeah, it didn't quite work for me. Uh, it felt beautiful, <laughs> but a little a little empty. Um, Interesting. It was gorgeous, though. <laughs> I really love the first season of True Detective. Oh yeah, like that was good. Exactly oh, yeah. my so thing. Good. So uh, good. Except for its massive gender issues, but it even sort of commented <laughs> on those in a in yeah, an interesting yeah. way. Were you were you satisfied? Do you think it, the ending was built up too much? Nope. I too, was too sort of existential, and then didn't. No, I was satisfied with it. I uh, I did not expect an overt reveal of the supernatural. My one disappointment with the ending is I think uh, it was a little too happy. Uh, not too happy. I just thought uh, it became too moralistic in the last uh, scene or two with explicit talk about, you know, light and darkness, good and evil. I don't think... Yeah. I think the series was much more about uh, the world is a shitty place and we have to make our own our own good uh, than yeah. like, oh yeah, we're, we're Jedi, we're paladins. Um, <laughs> Guardians make their own fate. Exactly. So by the way, if you like uh, True Detective Season 1, you should... You owe it to yourself to read Thomas Ligotti, who is a incredible writer of weird horror, who uh, suffers from tremendous mental health issues. And every like few years, he emerges from depression long enough to produce a book, and it's all oh man, it's all just the bleakest cosmic horror. Um, so in Lovecraft, what's horrifying is the curtain is pulled back from reality and. Uh, you realize there's some horrible alien meaning behind it, and merely trying to comprehend it drives you insane. In Ligotti, what happens is you pull back the curtain over ordinary reality, and there's nothing there. Um, it's a very different kind of... Uh, yeah, Dread. Yeah. Uh, nice. Check that out. A book called uh, The Cipher by Kathy Koja. I just read it. It's an early 90s like grunge horror classic about a abusive couple who finds a uh, hole in the uh, floor of the storage closet in their apartment. And the hole is not normal. It's really good. <laughs> they just leave it's, it back. Oh, it's, it's a very disturbing hole. They never are. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Yeah. Yes. Do you have any, do you have any particular favorite stories in the destiny lore? Yeah. Uh, 
do not say Dwindler's Ruin. <laughs> I mean, uh, everybody loves the Thorn Last Heard story leading up to Dwindler's Ridge. Like, there's no question that's an all-star. Uh, I really like... My weakness is for the stories that get a bit into character work. Um, mm-hmm. That take a little bit of break from... Uh, you know, proper nouns, doing intrigue, and everyone talking portentously about what might or might not be happening behind the scenes. I really like when you get stuff like, uh... I mean... <laughs> like Ghost Fragment Fallen. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Is that the one with Cade and the, the Baron? Yes, yeah. I yep. love that one. Um, I, uh... I feel like there was another one in that vein I really enjoyed, but I can't remember. Um... It's been too long, so I no longer have all the cards like memorized. Yeah. Uh, I mean, there's ones where who's who is Shax's robot? Is that Arsite? Yes, yeah. There's one about Shax sending him in, down into the oh, city yes. to, yeah. to deal with like gamblers who are trying to fix crucible matches. That one was by I want to say by Felix Gilman, who uh, is a great writer, um, best known I think for the Half Man's World. Uh, I'm fond of, uh, there's a thread about this, like, hunter wandering around killing people. She's pretty cool. Um, you're kind of asking me to pick my favorite child, or my, my favorite, uh, uh <laughs> nephew or niece. Yeah. If this one I didn't write. Uh, is that, so the, I think the one you just referenced is on, we've, we've talked about it a bit. We did a whole episode on hunters. Uh, yeah, the, the female hunter who's sent to hunt down the winter baron. Yeah. Or the Winter Kell, and you know whether or not she was a gunslinger or not, and what her connection to Cade is, and the possibility that it could have been Anna Bray. Interesting. Um, I mean, I I also really like the ones that are sort of involve some cosmic insight, like the one with the Exo who keeps shooting himself with a particle beam. That was fun. <laughs> I wish we had Beta. Beta and I, who's he's another member of this podcast. We first met on the reddit lore channel sort of trying to dissect the origins of the exos and there's a lot of stuff tied in there mm-hmm. even like standing around some of the exos in game like he and i both have a habit of hanging around listening to flavor text or idle oh, chat oh, from so NPCs. much too and it's so good i love the tower dialogue oh yeah yeah one of my favorite stories is um just with Ariana three and uh, then the connections with waning. Yeah. Uh, we get, we get so many stories of guardians where they seem to be kind of working towards their own path. You know, we have Toland, you have Osiris and then you have Ariana three who her dedication to her friend to waning to revenge her death is what drives her through her whole mission. So yeah. I love that, that story there. I like that too. I really like it when uh, characters in games seem to care about each other because so often your relationship with characters in games is they tell you to do stuff and then they give you prizes. Uh, and uh, I think games are very short on characters who um, have a sort of pure relationship with you in the sense of like you're friends and you can count on each other for support, but they're not going to send you on a quest to like. I don't know, uh, you know, collect 50 crystals or whatever. Uh, <laughs> I've always wanted to have a character in a game who's kind of got their own problems and their own stuff going on, but occasionally they'd be like, oh yeah, somebody gave you that annoying fetch quest. I'll do it for you. 
and they'll just kind of mm-hmm. do do you a favor. Uh, yeah. if those sort of mutually supportive relationships. Yeah. Uh, like Kate. Yeah. Yeah. I uh, <laughs> scroll through here. Uh, I loved all the stuff with the vaults of glass. It was great. Yeah. Um, yeah, we we haven't tackled a vault right. episode yet. Just so Let me tell you my... If, so setting aside all the cards everyone loves, if I'm going to pick a card I love that's uh, kind of underappreciated, it is uh, the Crimor card for Glimmer. Uh, I'm, oh, I'm yeah. really proud of that card because uh, it actually outlines a vaguely functional economy uh, that even explains why uh, you don't get given high-level armor as soon as you show up in the tower. Uh, not that it's even clear to me how high-level armor would work for uh, a novice guardian, but uh, <laughs> I, I just like it. I like that the economics work a little bit. Yep. Yeah, when I was writing the entry on Destiny Timeline for the creation of engrams and how that came about, I had to do a lot of digging into what exactly Glimmer was and how Glimmer works and how an economy would be based around stuff like that. It's good stuff, Glimmer. Hmm. Alright. <laughs> well, coming, I guess we're kind of nearing the end here. I guess I'm kind of curious now. Uh, again, something that, that isn't <laughs> isn't on our, our questions, but uh, have uh, I'm, I'm, I'm assuming, you know, given the opportunity, you'd you'd uh, write some more for, for Destiny and, and for Bungie. Um, yeah. is, is that something that, that we could see in the future, or is that something we can't talk about? Uh, yeah, I honestly don't know. I would love to uh, to get more, more work with them. Uh, it's, it's on a freelance basis, so if they hit me up and say, hey, we got some work you want to do, that would be awesome. They also have been building a great team of writers in-house, um, so they may be able to pick up the slack. I don't really know. Uh, well, you have to finish uh, book six and seven, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, I meant to bring that up earlier. Yeah, everyone was like, um, "We have to get the thorn." Uh, everyone was like, "The thorn quote was from the books of sorrow, but it's not in the books of sorrow." No. It's like we only did five books on purpose. That thing's not the seventh one. Mm-hmm. You guys, yeah, we're very anxious. <laughs> uh, and who knows how many well, books I mean, of sorrow there are? It could be like, uh, I don't know. It could be a, a really long-running series. There's a lot of sorrow out there. <laughs> this is true. Eight and a half more years this worth, I guess. <laughs> I, I just want. Wow. I want a 52 Grimoire card history of the Vex. That's what I think needs to happen. It's going to be awesome. It's going to be the same card repeated from start and to start. And I'll be zeros and ones, and I'll be fine with it. I just want it. <laughs> It'll start with an ellipses and end with an ellipses. <laughs> I really liked uh, the Vex Myths class flavor text. That oh, was yeah. Awesome. Yeah. We had the damnedest time naming that thing. I remember uh, <laughs> I sent a list of emails to Luke Smith, and he just picked one, and he was like, that one. and it was perfect. It was the right one. Nice. He's good at his job. Uh, yeah, yeah I'd, I'd love to do more work for Bungie. Bungie, hire me. Bungie, please. Nice. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I, I, actually, yeah, I'm working on my next book, so really I should finish that damn thing. But uh, it's not... <laughs> That won't stop me from doing more more stuff if offered. Yeah. Nice. Oh, I hope. I mean, I, I sincerely hope that comes about again. Like the the, I think the books of sorrow were so well received, and are such a high point of the Taken King. I'm glad. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
And I mean, I've, and again, just from my own perspective, as somebody who has sat in front of them for hours and hours and hours and hours and dissected them word for word, it's like they, they do have an effect on you, like reading from start to finish so many times the way that I have and diving into the cards the way that I have. And like sometimes I'll put the Taken King soundtrack on in the background while I'm doing it. And you start to develop like a different viewpoint for a lot of these characters and you you start to understand Oryx as a tragic character mm-hmm. rather than sort of like this monstrosity like ha ha I dominate everything it's like no like you understand like the raw deal with the worm gods and maybe this wasn't the best choice but it's the only one that you have and then you get in this sort of like psychological scenario where it's like so way back you made the wrong choice but now you're you have no choice but to be committed to that you know wrong choice do you just try to make the best of it that you possibly can while entertaining this nugget in the back of your mind that man i was wrong like way back when i was wrong but i can't ever show that i was and i can never feign to believe anything else uh because of the nature of the scenario that I'm so in. i kind of glazed yeah. over there did you just say that oryx was married what what <laughs> 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 no, sorry. Wow. <laughs> oh, you're talking about my life. Oh, sorry. <laughs> Jeez, <No>. guys. <laughs> Jeez. Sorry. It's kind of dark. <laughs> yeah. Well, maybe I'm allowed these things because I'm the one non-married guy in this team. <laughs> yeah, I, uh, yeah, I'm glad they're fun to read. They were certainly fun to write. Uh, you made me remember the uh, <laughs> one of the cards that was the most fun, which is uh, card four. Oh, oh uh, uh, the one where the hive uh, wipe out the Taisha Um Oh, I'm mm-hmm. still convinced that at some point we're going to see the Taisha Bethy perfect raven emerge and just wipe out the universe. <laughs> that's <pretty> awesome. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's a good one. Yeah, I was waiting the whole time. Every time I'm on the Dreadnought, I'm like, this thing is going <laughs> to rise up out of one of these pits and be like, this is something you've never... Taisha Bethy God mm-hmm. Raven, like, just annihilate everybody. Yeah, that's that's the card where it's, you know, this is your God. It is never ticklish. And that's... Yeah. I love that quote there. There's that line. It's like, oh. <laughs> and this is a great... I mean, that's a great card, too. That's Golden Amputation, mm-hmm. uh, which I love that phrase. All lowercase drives me crazy. <laughs> uh, but then when it appears elsewhere in the text, it's capitalized. So who knows? Uh, who knows? But Who knows? this card gave us great insight into some of the members of Court of War. Yes. So, and this is the card that actually that made us think, originally made me think, hey, maybe there's a problem with the translation. Uh, because the first pace, Craghor, uh, is spelled differently from the way the enemy actually appears in the game. Even though it's very clear that they're the same person or the same thing. And I was like, oh, man, whoever translated the books translated their names differently than however enemies are translated through our HUD. And, like, who made your helmet? They're responsible for that translation? I don't know. But So the idea that a character appears in two different places with a different name but is very clearly the same thing. Yeah. Yeah, yeah that reminds me of uh, the whole thing with the, uh, the Ecumen, uh, which is one of the mm-hmm. other... Uh, kind of coalitions wiped out by the hive, uh, and people were saying it was a reference to the forerunner government on Halo. I, and I, I actually had no idea that the forerunner government was named the Acumen. 
Oh, <laughs> nice. The Ecumen Council. That's funny. <laughs> it's not even Ecumen. It's that it's Ecumen Council, which appears in both Jeez. texts. Like, <laughs> <laughs> that's no good. I feel like there was an Ian Banks or something. There was a, but I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I talked about that a lot in the the Bungie lore episode that we did. <laughs> All right. You guys got anything else? All right. Uh, no. Oh, well, I mean, I put thirteen on here, but it's kind of a, a jerk. <laughs> but question. that's a very interesting. It's an interesting point because uh, it is grammatically incorrect. So. Uh, the, the, the question is, are you aware there's a grammatical error in the tagline of your last blog post? Where I wrote, last night I had the strangest dream, where it should be last night I had the strangest dream. And yes, grammatically this is incorrect, but I would I would push on you that using the present tense, last night I had the strangest dream, is it a better decision for the effect I'm going for? Because it immediately tells you this something weird and wrong. Um, it creates a sort of dream-like quality and also i think uh if it's going to be written in the present tense um saying uh last night is almost being treated as a place like uh imagine like in toronto i have the strangest dream or or um i don't know uh, <laughs> uh, uh yes. my, my, my point I, is I, you I, can break grammatical rules sometimes in order to play around with language yeah you, but you gotta know what well, you're I, you I, know what. I wonder if maybe it was like a vex reference like, <laughs> last night i had the strangest dream tonight i will have the strangest dream and tomorrow i'll have the same strangest dream. so <laughs> they're all this they're all the strangest no matter when they that occur. does kind of lead to a uh, a broader point about how to how to read um texts and how to theorize about them uh you're really good at like um, looking for sort of explicit Codes and ciphered in the text, like uh, you know, maybe the presence or absence of capitalization. Uh, it's like some binary signal. What I, I would also say is that, and I, I think lore communities tend to be quite bad at this. So also look at what the text is saying, not, not literally, uh, not, not in terms of like secret directed messages, but, but as a piece of craft, like. What does it mean that those particular words were chosen? Uh, what, what is it? What does that phrase evoke in you? I know I sound like a high school English teacher, but but uh, there are layers of meaning that are, that are not explicit and that are not going to be deciphered by you know figuring out exactly unambiguously what this word means, or figuring out whether uh, this phrase is in reference to some other text. Sometimes um, it's like an image that evokes another book or, or uh, uh, one character speaks in a way reminiscent of another and this tells you something about their relationship. I don't know. Uh, I just encourage you to... Uh, this, is not, this is not meant to be like... Uh, to, in addition to the awesome stuff you do. Um, I, I guess I, I, what I... A good example of this is... Uh, there's a scene in Batman Begins, you know the first Nolan Batman movie? Yeah. Uh, mm -hmm. Everyone always accuses these movies of being really po-faced and serious. And I think Batman Begins is incredibly funny. It's a really funny movie. <laughs> and there's a scene where uh, fear gas has been deployed in the population of Gotham. And Batman, mm -hmm. who is this rich man who dresses up as a bat and punches crime. 
uh, uh, he's been struck by the fear gas. And so have all these poor people around him. He's like in the slums. And he looks around, and there's all these scary poor people staggering towards him. They look like demons. And he's freaking out. And they like mob around him, and they're gonna tear the, the, the Batman apart. But he looks up, and there's a train passing overhead. And may I remind you, these trains were constructed by his rich father. Uh, and he grapples onto the train, and he's lifted up out of the crowd and drawn away. So, when I bring this scene up, uh, people are like, well, that's not really that funny. Like, it's not a joke. And it is not literally a joke. But the fact that in the scene, Batman is attacked by poor people who he sees as crazy and threatening, and is then able to attach himself to this, you know, inheritance that his father left, and they'll fly away. That's like a joke. No one, no one in the world is saying, yeah. uh... And Batman is so rich he can escape the crazy poor people. You know, he's he was able to grappling hook himself out of no cop is gonna look and say, Oh no, Batman so economic privilege just enabled him to escape that situation. But that's the joke. Like Yeah. Uh, and sometimes even the characters in movies do things for reasons that make no literal sense, but they make uh symbolic or uh, I don't know, like subtextual sense and I'm often willing to forgive a movie for what seems like a plot hole if um if it fits subtextually like like and even the end of Interstellar which everyone hated like the power of love uh, uh I, I was like you know I even as a physicist I know uh everyone is like this is bad science like I was like you know you can just read this as aliens cannot target their uh, aliens, whatever, the future humans, can't target the transmission well, so they need to bring someone in who understands uh, exactly where it can do the most good. And, and uh, the, the fact that his his love for his daughter helped him to make the right choices to communicate this, that works for me. That's cool. Or even like Snowpiercer, where, where why is everyone on a train? Why, why is, why, why is everyone on train? It's a cool movie in a very Terry Gilliam way. Yeah, yeah, and it's like, it doesn't make any literal sense that everyone's on a train, but it's a great metaphor for capitalism. And then at the end, yeah. there's like two survivors, the, the children. Sorry, guys, they just know about Snowpiercer. And, and uh, <laughs> everyone's like, well, they're just going to freeze to death on this ice planet or get eaten by a polar bear. And like, yeah, literally, they would literally freeze to death. But think about what the movie is saying. Uh, this place is like clearly a weird Adam and Eve thing. The movie is allegorical. Uh, look at it that way and see what you can get out of it. I don't know. I'm sorry. Total crazy old man rant. It is getting even... late. No, it's fine. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. no. So, you know, one of the the words, and I know I I found the Reddit post where you also addressed this, but the word Gaius, as it appears in the Books of Sorrow. Or oh, Gaius, oh, yeah. Uh, which is, and the Gaelic, the Irish Gaelic spelling is used. Like, is this a hint to the authors or the... As I think, why would an ancient hive god use this word? Oh, maybe it's a result of where we translated it. Uh, but then my girlfriend is a writer, so I asked her. And she was like, sometimes a word is a word, and it's used for a particular effect, like, as it fits in the context of the overall narrative. Like, don't overanalyze this thing in the most literal possible sense. Like, it's being used here for the effect that it conveys to the what the the feeling it's trying to convey in the text that it appears in not necessarily like what is the hard origin of this word and what does it mean to like hard fact a b and c yeah 
So I try try and keep those things in mind when I when I read through yeah, this. Stuff. Yeah, I think that's a perfect example. Like ski is uh, it, probably not literally with the hive meaning, but it creates the effect for us at the hive word creates for the hive, and so it's it's a good translation. Um, I think about this a lot when uh, using expressions uh, in, in in secondary world fantasy. So fantasy, you know, set in worlds not our own. Uh, uh, can characters use words like say, uh, uh, what's a word that would like disrupt your immersion? If I saw it in fantasy, um, uh, well, so one that often gets me is sabotage. Are characters allowed to say sabotage in their secondary world fantasy? Now, given that uh, sabo is, is a French word, so, and it's so clearly derived from, uh, uh, you know, a particular historical moment, or can characters of genes, given that genes are named as for plants in France? Uh, and yeah. so my answer is generally, you know, you know all our languages are historically contingent. It's based on something that happened on Earth. So, so just treat it as an effective translation. Uh, like the phrase by and large, did you know that's. Uh, expression from sailing uh yeah really? was, i thought it was just something i never thought about why we say by and large but apparently it refers to two separate ways of sailing a ship and, and if a ship could handle both the body and the large <laughs> it, it was a good ship oh interesting uh if you just google around you might be able to find something anyway i yeah so, so uh anything else you guys i guess i guess i guess hearing Baker's dozen in sci-fi would totally throw me off if it was a non-human person. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, actually, you keep typing a gigantic word at the bottom of this document. I know, right? You might as well bring this up. Me? Oh, I'm just, I'm just yeah. curious about it. As are, yeah. are many. All right, fire away. I'm, I mean, we have, we have what it means. We have the definition. But all right. So. What? What are we going to do about that's that? That's not how you pronounce it. It's not I. That's how I read it, because I like that word. <laughs> oh, my. Really? You've been reading this the whole time? I can't see what word you guys are talking about. No, it came from... It. It came, I always pronounce it that way because of that, uh, that Reddit post where that guy was, was uh, defining it. Didn't, didn't you guys see that? Well, he defined... A- Ayat. Oh, oh, yeah. yeah. I love that word. Yeah. <laughs> As do we. As do we. Oh man, I never even thought of it the way that. X-ray hey. Oh really? Oh my gosh! I gotta find that. I gotta find that Reddit guy. He was did this definition thing of it, and it's hilarious. Uh, I won't be able to find it right now. I'll get it sometime though. Oh, but now I now I, when I read verse five six, I can only think hey. of what's his name saying. All right, all right, all right. <laughs> the true detective. <laughs> Yeah. Oh man, you ruined Sorry, it. Man. Over and over. I do that to people. My bad. <laughs> so uh, I think I think the question X-ray may have had was, did you create this word? Yes, I did. I did. Nice. That's uh. Yeah, and I said someone asked what it meant. I read it, and I gave them a definition. Yes, which I have right here because I love this definition so much. <laughs> well, no one can read it, so read it to us. How come nobody can read it? It's right in the notes. Uh, I mean, the people <laughs> listening on the... Oh. <laughs> oh, 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 yeah. All right. Yeah. So, wait. Uh, do you want me to do it? Yeah, do it. The yeah. word definition of IOT is written here. It is, uh, this is it. And it's the purpose of this expression. I mean, its meaning is the invocation of what it is. 
Fishit's mission is to draw into mind and make an incision of curiosity. He defeats that incision, which is a question and its own solution. Want to make him go hunger for an answer whose answer is its own wanting. I got This is it. That is the utterance. That's what that means. No, that's not nonsense. It means something. So if you meditate on it, you maybe can develop hierarchical powers. We have a. No, I love it. We have a lot of fans of that of that word in our, our fan yeah. chat. Excellent, excellent. Well, <laughs> all is well. Yeah. What is that? War is healthy. What is that? Peace is sick. Okay, so yeah. I think this about wraps it up. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I couldn't. I couldn't have asked for a better ending. So perfect. perfect. Well, one thing I want to mention before we before we cut it off here uh, is that. In talking to, to Seth prior to recording, uh, he has agreed to uh, uh, donate a, a hardback uh, autographed copy of his novel, The Traitor Baru Cormorant. And what? did I say something wrong again? <laughs> no, you're you're telling me a thing I didn't know. You didn't know, know that? No. Well, yeah, you can't, you're not eligible <laughs> no, to win it either. So, like, uh, yeah, piss off. Um, <laughs> so, if uh, if you would like an autographed copy of his book, uh, we need you to do one of two things: either email us and tell us what your favorite part of this interview was, uh, and if you could please include the hashtag of Trader DGS. Um, or hit us up on Twitter with the same hashtag and the same uh, answer to the question of what did you enjoy most about our, our discussion with with Seth? Uh, and we will... Oh, we also are going to, because we had a little issue or are currently having an issue with some overseas deliveries, we are going to limit this to our uh, North American, I guess, United States... Uh, uh, listeners, so uh, X-ray North America is bigger than just the United States. <laughs> what? I said that's why I said United States after the fact. So smaller. <laughs> no, Canada and Mexico. Also no, eligible. I don't want Titan Master Race to run this. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm just kidding, Titan. Just kidding, man. That was just a, that was a good joke, though. Um, all right, so yeah, North America, you guys can win too, I suppose. Um, just, uh, just, yeah, shoot us an email, hit us up on Twitter and, uh, and I'm going to be jealous of you as, as are the rest of our, our podcast family here. Did did you say what the email address was? I wasn't listening. Um, man, if, uh, yeah, I guess I should do that. Um, so we are on Twitter at D ghost stories, or you can email us at destiny ghost stories at gmail.com. Uh, as per usual, so um, what, but because of the uh, the content here, we may have some new listeners who haven't heard me say that those taglines about a hundred times in prior episodes of the podcast. Uh, there you go. Mm-hmm. And also, uh, anything that we've talked about, we will try to put links in our show notes so you can find the stuff there, especially some of the things mm-hmm. um, regarding uh, what we talked about with the alpha workshop for young writers and uh, the, the blue planet uh, project that, that Seth worked on that we kind of, we didn't talk a lot about it, but it definitely is interesting. There's some pretty cool uh, videos and there's a, we'll put the, the link to the, to the YouTube channel 
in, uh, in as there. well as the uh, bigger Luke theory. <laughs> yep. Um, yep. We'll put so, it in there. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, we will, and and we'll also throw out a link uh, to where you can find his book and his website because uh, all that information that we're linking is linked there. So lots of links to links of links that you can find <laughs> stuff that we talked about, um, and I again such a great great time i know this was a long uh discussion but seth thanks so much much for joining us i know it's it's yes. uh getting late um out <laughs> your way yeah and, it was great and yeah thank I'm you sorry, so much i like talked a lot so you guys could feel no, free to bad. take the sounds i make and just edit them around <laughs> we don't <laughs> edit much if anything um <laughs> well what we're really gonna do is we're gonna take all of your words and re-edit them to make it sound like you said all these really secret things about destiny yes. jaron ward <laughs> is dredging your <laughs> <laughs> what confirmed <laughs> yep, done done uh, did it awesome. got him to say all those words so. um <laughs> That was the only. That was the only reason oh, we had you on. Man. No, uh, <laughs> man, no. It's such a. Oh, this is great. And and you know what? We wanted you to talk. That's the whole point. Nobody wants to hear us mm-hmm. talk when we have have more important people on the podcast. So more important. You, yes. Usually, we, we're just listening to drop slash. So it's not really different for me <laughs> or X Ray. So. <laughs> hey now, I talked for an hour by myself a week ago. Um, well, well, now you have instead of me theorizing about what all the words are, you. We finally, we finally got to talk to the guy who actually exactly. wrote them. So, so great. Good. Yeah, good well, stuff. feel free to hit me up on email if you... Wait, well, I get in trouble for saying this. Feel free to send me questions, and I, I won't answer them if I'm not allowed there to. There you go. <laughs> um, <laughs> remember, again, I have no more authority over any of this than you guys do. Uh, I just like talking yeah. about it. I, it's cool. It's awesome. fun. We're glad you chose to talk about it with us. I mean, such a, mm-hmm. such a great yeah, thing. Yeah, we really yeah, appreciate you guys it. Uh, yeah. did a lot of prep. It was very well organized. Thanks. We try. Yeah. We try. No, uh, no, no jokes. Books of Sorrow is what got me into the lore. I'd always kind of been a fan of the, the overall story, but didn't like grimoire cards weren't in the game and at the, and easily accessible. And I just I hadn't taken the time to actually get into them. And then my brother sent me a link once it was data mined. He's like, "You have to read this." And I sat down and I read it all like in twenty minutes probably and I was just like, oh my gosh. Yeah. I I need to I need more. <laughs> Man, we should uh, we should make hard copies and drop them as leaflets mm-hmm. over major cities. People could pick them up and be like, what the <laughs> fuck is this? What is this? <laughs> <laughs> Yes. <laughs> and that about does it. It's <laughs> a good witty. Alright, good, good night guys. Around. So thank you very much. Right, thanks everybody. Thank have you so much. Yeah, thank you so thank night. you ever- oh. just heard we are giving away a copy of seth dickinson's recent novel the traitor baru cormorant if you'd like to enter this giveaway you need to 
email us at destinyghoststories at gmail.com or you can tweet us at dghoststories on Twitter. You'll need to include the hashtag TraitorDGS along with your favorite moment from tonight's episode. Good luck, and unfortunately we are limiting this to uh, the continent of North America. I think I got that right. <laughs> Thanks. Good luck. Hey everybody, it's Scooby Deezy here, your favorite Ghost Stories special guest. And uh, I know you don't get to hear me very often, and I'm sad about that as well. Uh, but right now I'm super excited to announce that we have got some new t-shirts and hoodies and things to buy. Ghost Stories swag. Best thing ever. Um, it's up in our store right now at uh, represent.com slash store slash the ghost stories and um, shirts, hoodies, stuff uh, with our logo on it um, that you can buy and we think they're super awesome and there's some uh, really cool gems in there, uh, little uh, inside jokes and, and ghost story stuff that um, if you're a fan, I think that you're really going to like. So um, anyways, head on over to the store. Again, that's uh, represent.com slash store slash D ghost stories and you know everything um, that you buy when you support us it goes to just help out the podcast we use it to get better equipment and just um, bring you better content and things that, that we love and that make us better and um, just makes it awesome for everybody so yeah that's it okay go buy stuff thanks for listening you're why we do this bye